Hey, this is Matt Greenberg, screenwriter of Halloween H2O. You are listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror movies. podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies. We typically bring you a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, but during October, to celebrate the month of Halloween, we bring you weekly releases. And here in episode 159, we have a Halloween extravaganza. Because on Horror Movie Podcast, you hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shark Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, and happy Halloween, Jason. (laughs) Happy Halloween to you too, Josh. This is so much fun to be recording this right now because I would bet that there are a few people listening to this on yeah. October 31st. <laughs> and that's that, that makes me so happy because that's exactly what this is designed for. And because of that, we, we've decided to bring on the big guns. We want to welcome a very special guest to help us with this episode. Uh, he has been one of the jurors on our Horror Cinema Awards. And uh, he's also appreciated and loved for helping put the original Halloween feature film back at theaters back in uh, 2012, if I'm not mistaken. He's a writer and a producer. He's written for Scream Magazine and Phantasm Media, previously been a contributor and associate editor at Fangoria. He produces Blu-rays at Scream Factory and Shout Factory, and he has a ton of other credits, but we welcome Justin Beam. Happy Halloween, guys. (laughs) Happy Halloween. So glad to finally have you on the show. It's my honor. Thank you. Thank you. I went to that screening in 2012 uh, of Halloween uh, that you made happen. I went with a friend of our show, uh, William Rowan Jr. And I remember there was a short film you actually directed that preceded the film, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yeah, they were looking. Well, the story behind it was that a lot of people have been looking for a new Halloween film. And it had been thrown around for a number of years. There were these kind of starts and stops and starts and stops. And so I thought, what better way to celebrate than to put the original back in theaters? And so we went on the hunt to try to find this. At this time, I was working for Trancus International Films and Compass. And we went on the hunt to try to find a distribution partner on it. And I got to be honest, it's hilarious to sit here today considering the climate that we're in this week. But <laughs> at, at that time, convincing a distributor, uh, even a, a theater chain, to roll the dice and bring in Halloween back into theaters was was met with some dismissal, I guess you could say, and wow. otherwise just sort of confused size when I was <laughs> reaching out to these folks. Like, what? Why? Why would we? No, no <laughs> one wants that. And finally, we found a great partner in a company called Screen Vision. And they do a lot of, before before movies roll, they do a lot of the trivia and ad space 
that run before films and they were getting into boutique booking. And so we found a great partner in them. And one of the things that we wanted to do to spice it up was to offer a little bit of additional content. And so I put together this short called You Can't Kill the Boogeyman that looks at the cultural presence of the boogeyman around the world and how that translates into the Halloween films in the U.S. And I have interviews with a few people from the films, like we played Michael and George Wilbur, Tyler Maine, and some other folks cool. from the horror community in it. And yeah, it was a neat little piece that ran in all the theaters, which is a pretty unique thing. And it was a really special. That, that October is one that will be forever etched in my heart. That was incredible. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the time we're recording this now, Halloween 2018 is the number one film in the United States. So it is funny how things can change so quickly, I suppose. Yeah. What if Justin was responsible for that? My renaissance. Well <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Hardly. Hardly. No, it's funny because today I was listening to the, so of course, as we record this, the new Blumhouse Halloween film is in theaters. There's all, it's also the 40th anniversary of John Carpenter's 1978 classic. It's also the 30th anniversary of Halloween four. And so today in preparation for this episode, as I was doing other stuff around the house, I've been listening to the commentary tracks for Halloween four. And it's like, Oh yeah, that, that's Justin on the commentary there. <laughs> so that That's a fun thing to be forever married to mm-hmm. the film in that way. I bet. Oh yeah. That, I mean, talk about, I'm going to say honor a lot here, but uh, yeah, that was, that was a real thrill. And th- those are the first Blu-rays that I had anything to do with and being on those tracks and especially getting Dwight little to participate. Cause he yeah. had never really done anything like mm-hmm. that before. And he was real nervous about it and we connected in it. And, and I think our conversation was, was so much fun. And I think we got into some pretty, some pretty deep stuff there in terms of the structure of the film and, what his perspective is on the whole thing and even surprised him a little bit. You know, he really, he was shocked at the, the white, the blonde hair on that mask. He literally was sat there like, I don't have a story for this. I have no idea how this <laughs> happened. <laughs> I really have no idea. And I'm like, all right. Cause that moment arrived and I'm waiting, you know, cause that's finally, well, you're going to get the answer. You're <laughs> this is it. This is, this is where they say that Michael had a brother and he was a surfer from California and he stalked the beaches and here he is, but Nope, there was no, no and he even said that he's like i wish i had a romantic story for you on this but i just don't i have no, no idea what's going on right that, now. <laughs> yeah. well I, I heard you asked him about so you know was it intentional to change the mask and he's like no we were trying to do the mask the same like really you're trying to do it the same like that's kind of yeah kind of a surprise <laughs> yeah i think that that you know there's so many cooks in the kitchen with each entry yeah. of any franchise and it's just like freddie you know he, he looks different in every single film You're right and and even though it's the same actor underneath it's it's and i you look at by the time you get to as the films get bigger when they arrive at the scale of an h2o for example after dwelling in sort of low budget cinema for so long all of a sudden you have like five masks in the film and then there's a cg mask because they don't like that other one and then there's like so depending (laughs) on what scene you're looking at but yeah that's always been i think one of the fascinating things about the franchise and one of the most often discussed among fans like at michaelmyers.net and all these places where they pour over the shape of the eye holes the length of the neck the cut of the hair 
the glue lines and the sideburns and all that <laughs> stuff. Like it's 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 amazing. It's such a passionate, amazing fan base. It's beautiful. Well, well, and what and what fascinates me about it is the mask itself just by its very nature is is somewhat of a blank canvas and there's not you know it's somewhat um non-distinctive or or what by design yeah yeah by design on purpose and yet there are still a lot of details that um the fan base latches onto you know? maybe when you have so little to work with all of those things become much more pronounced right <laughs> yeah, that's because true. i mean it is interesting that, that that is such a big deal but we talked about this i think back when we did our halloween franchise review oh so many years ago it is like he's the star of the movie and so to say especially after halloween three to say we're bringing michael myers back and then it maybe doesn't always look like michael myers for the next few films you think oh well, you know, where's the star of the show? But mm-hmm. of course, we we all got over it eventually. <laughs> right. But I like that. I, I I think of this franchise as, and even Michael, you could just say Michael too. But I think of the franchise as a model in the middle of a room, and standing all around it are different artists, different painters. And if you were to circle the room, each one of them is going to be doing something a little bit different. And I think that's a pretty that's unique cool. thing. Because there's so many franchises, like Friday the 13th is the same way. The changing look of Jason and his MO and all that, like that, that's part of what gives a distinctive flavor to each film and what makes it possible for fans to dive in on any single one of them and enjoy it as its own entity and not yeah. be reliant on what came before or after. And I think that Halloween's very similar in that way. Like the only films that really have consistency are the original one and two and then Rob's one and two where there, there's a, a, a progression between the two where one picks up immediately after the other. That's really only happened right. twice. Right. Well, and you know, and I think in terms of the mask, I think actually 2018 is, is a really interesting connection back to those original masks. And I don't know, kind of warmed my heart. We'll get into that, I guess, in a minute, but it kind of warmed my heart to see that, that yeah. version on screen. Yeah, and, and one of the neat things about sequels, I used to do, a long time ago, I did a podcast about sequels where we studied just franchises in general and, and that whole concept. And it, it was interesting how people look for something they can recognize, something that is more of the same, but yet somewhat different in, or, in order to keep it fresh. And you have to have that balance. And I think it's a really fine line when you're, <laughs> I suppose... I'm not a filmmaker, but I, I bet that's a difficult line to walk where it's it's familiar enough that they're happy to see it again, but it's not like the same thing over and over. Well, and everybody who's walking onto set, no matter what their role is, is an artist. In some way, they're an artist. Yeah. And so they, they want to have something that's theirs. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's an element of, you can't help but deliver yourself in that scenario. It's just like Dominique in part five, who took a very, very different approach to everything from lighting to the the realism and the violence to the mm-hmm. madness and the doc, Dr. Loomis and stuff. Like he he didn't walk in intentionally wanting to sort of upset the the table setting, but at the same time, that's kind of what he did. I mean, it was a, right. a lot of fans point to that one and say this was a real departure. It's such a stark, dark movie. And well, that's what he brought to the table. So yeah. 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 Yeah, it's interesting. I really like your analogy about the different artists because just today as I was thinking about the film, I thought, well, it's almost like 
David Gordon Green and Rob Zombie are making fan films. It's kind of the only thing that sets <laughs> them apart from another yeah. fan film is that, well, they have the budget and the okay from the, the copyright holders. But in a lot of ways, they're kind of coming back to those that original film or original couple of films and saying, what would I bring to this? And, you know, what's my take on this? And that is a little bit different than what all the other people making sequels were doing, you know, but I, I don't know. That is, int- I like your interpretation much better than, than my own. Cause I think that's a, that's a, that's a very generous way of looking at it. I think mm-hmm. I just, I was actually just talking with Rob yesterday cause I'm doing a big next year's the 10th anniversary of his Halloween two, which I think is a wonderful film, a, a beautiful, a beautiful movie. And, and, uh, and very misunderstood. And so I, years ago I had started in on the, an official Halloween book when I was at Trancus and that eventually fell apart. But when I left the company, but I had some articles in already in, in hand and one of those, and I had known Rob, he had done some stuff for a charity I co-founded and other stuff. And I did a couple really extensive interviews with him about the Halloween, his Halloween movies when I went back to revisit those to do this article, I was like, yeah, there's still a little housekeeping to do. And so I text Rob and I was like, Hey man, can we just hop on the phone real fast? And so we talked yesterday about it and we touched on that very thing. Cause one of the things I, that it, we didn't get to the first time that we specifically spoke about this stuff was, what do you think your contribution to the Halloween franchise has been? And he said, the thing that he's, that he's proudest of, the thing that he thinks is really special about what he did is that his two movies stand alone. Like he feels like the rest of the franchise all the way through from one to the new one, like they're all a thing. And then there's his two sort of off in the corner of the room. And he, th- hmm. and, and he, and he takes great pride in that, that these two are really, they stand outside that realm. And I agree with that. I think that while storylines may not be completely consistent and all of that, there's a lot of bizarro elements when we get to part six, <laughs> certainly, and <laughs> all the rest of this. Uh, Jamie Lee coming and going and coming and going and ignoring these sequels here, ignoring those sequels there. His is an A to Z story. And I think that's pretty cool because mm. I think that, you know, that's, that's pretty unique in the world of franchises to yeah. have it be picked up again, even after that. Now, later on in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, the, the choose your own adventure type, you know, how, mm-hmm. how the mythology kind of takes various courses depending on, you know, which movies you're looking at. I mean, right. I, I, what do you think about that? I think that a lot of it has to do with exactly what you said earlier, which is wanting to keep things fresh mm-hmm. and, and wanting to offer audiences something a little bit different. And it's an interesting franchise in that it was really set on a very specific course with the decision made in Halloween 2 to make her his sister. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, it struggled to break free from that. Obviously, it unsuccessfully struggled to break free of that. The, when they tried to do it with resurrection, because they were really with that, they were really trying to open the door to all right, the family element's done now. He's just a Jason Voorhees type figure. Let's move into a new realm of just sort of a slasher franchise and have him hunting whoever. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. And I, I don't, I don't really know why it got so wildly divergent. I really don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it's unique in that it died a number of times and was resurrected a number of times. Like after part three, it kind of sort of sat there dormant for a while and it, they bring Michael Myers back in four and it was this huge moment 
And then they rush five into production, get that knocked out the following year. And then it sits again for a while. And then <laughs> yeah. six came out and mystified everyone. Right. And then that, that really for all intents, everyone's like, well, there's the nail, right? There's the nail in the coffin. Yeah. And it, then it took Jamie Lee coming back. Because if Jamie Lee wouldn't have come back, H2O would have been, it maybe not even happened. Actually, I don't think it probably would have happened. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that got kickstarted again. And then after resurrection, that kind of killed it off for a while. Then they had to kickstart it again. So it's this, it's like this old car. (laughs) It's in a way, it's a lot like Christine where she gets beat down. She might get crushed, but she pops herself back into shape and she's on the road again. And you're like, oh, there she is. You know, this terrifying, beautiful thing continues to resurrect itself somehow mm-hmm. and fans yeah. continue to eat it up and here we are with the biggest box office to date in 2018 it, it's funny because yeah the actual monster the concept of michael myers you know is uh <laughs> like within the the realm of the franchise and the universe of the films he does this but also the movies themselves you know like they they manage to come back as you're describing right. it's pretty interesting yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. and uh so Justin, I have a random question for you. I, this is just something that I've always wondered about. And I think might as well take my swing. You're maybe the, one of the few people who would know the answer to this. Was there ever discussion of Josh Hartnett returning to the franchise? Not that I'm aware of. No. And cause uh, yeah, I, I heard him say he did some interview um, talking about the faculty and, and H2O just a couple of years ago. And some, and the interviewer asked him, um, would you ever do like Halloween H4O? And he said, yeah, I'd consider it. And I never heard follow-up from that. It was just like some random Good Morning America interview or something. <laughs> and I, I never heard peep of that in the horror community. I never, you know, that's I've never heard that as a as a rumor, a legitimate rumor, I should say, um, coming out of any of the copyright holders. So that's that's. Well, I think, I think there's an element of protection around these people at a certain point too, because when I, I've, I've heard the same thing about Paul Rudd, that he embraces having been in six and I try as, as I might, I could never get through to him for anything. And there's just this wall of people in front of him, like Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey with Chainsaw. It's like, you know, one though, this is your past. This is the skeleton in your closet. My buddy had the Nightmare on Elm Street remake on the other day when I went to his house. And that has, um, what's her name in it, from Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. She's the lead in that film. I completely oh, forgot yeah. that she's the lead in that film. But these, there is still that stigma, I think. There's this thing, especially among the representation side of things, the layers right. of talk to my people kind of a thing. I bet if, if Paul Rudd were to get a request, he'd be 100% on board. And it <laughs> sounds like Hartnett would be the same way. But unfortunately, they're, they're padded by wall after wall. Yeah, and I like you say, I think probably the stigma of horror intensifies that even more because I think that's the case with any celebrity, let alone if it's um, horror related. Uh, yeah, because I, I mean, not to get too sidetracked, but I did a documentary um, about the entertainment industry. It was about people who were illegally censoring uh, Hollywood films and then reselling them to conservative audiences with the oh sex gosh. and the violence cut out of it. And we interviewed, uh, so one of the main films in that discussion was Schindler's List. And we interviewed Jerry Mullen, who was the producer of Schindler's List, as well as the producer of Jurassic Park and several other Spielberg movies. And we thought, okay, we've got it. Now we've got, we've got his producer. We're going to be able to get Spielberg 
And we said, so can you help us connect with Steven? And he's just like, yeah, you'll never talk to him. And he's like, there are, there, are, there are legions of people whose entire job it is to keep you from talking, ever talking to him. <laughs> so like, okay, good to know. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Are you ta- I, I remember there was a brief time years ago where I worked at Blockbuster Video. Mm-hmm. And I, and I remember them saying like, so there yeah. are different versions of each one of these. I'm like, what, Right. this yeah. is a thing. This is actually a thing. And then I learned, you know, Walmart, a similar thing too, there where they, they sell censored albums, but then they'll sell you human centipede. Too. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So this was the company, the, my doc, the documentary is called clean Flix, but the company was about was specifically about this one company clean Flix, but yeah, blockbuster, Target, a lot of people were getting into that industry, but then the Directors Guild sued Clean Flicks and shut the whole thing down, basically. But mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry to yeah. talk, get so far sidetracked. No, that's fine. I, I, th- I think that is interesting because there are these people who um, protect these celebrities, I'm sure, with horror. It's even more difficult, but it's interesting to see Jamie Lee Curtis's reaction to the new Halloween because she's loving it. She's having the time of her life out doing all this press talking about, you know, one of her first films and this wonderful experience she had with John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, what a wonderful experience it was and how much she enjoys working in the horror genre. And it's just, it's interesting that she felt like she had to take that step away from it to be able to have this moment now. But I also do think maybe the reason it's so big now is because she did take that time away and became a star separate from, um, you know, the genre. So now there's all this interest in her return even in the mainstream there's this interest in oh what's jamie lee curtis doing this is a an odd move if you're not familiar with her as the scream queen yeah i love that and and you know what i what i appreciate most about that josh is the fact that um you know it because we we horror fans we people in the horror community we know that this is a respectable industry there are like genuine artists here and then when when they see and when i say they i mean the the community outside of horror when they see these um quote unquote legitimate actors coming back into horror i don't know i i feel like it maybe i hope that it elevates it for them i hope that's the case listeners if if you are uh, just tuning in to this we've actually covered the halloween franchise in depth in the past um episodes 27 through 31 at horrormoviepodcast.com you can catch them, but uh, tonight we're going to be reviewing in-depth. This will be our official feature review of Halloween 2018. And just to give you guys a little sample here of the excitement of some of the listeners anticipating this film, uh, here's a quick voicemail that came in from Greg, the Gray Man. He left us a voicemail just a couple of hours before heading out to the theater, and I wanted you guys to hear it because it just... Um, it really made me smile. Welcome to a horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror. <laughs> oh, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. This is Greg, the last time I swear. Great man out of Ohio, just wrapping up because of my deep enthusiasm, like every other horror fan right now, or every other fan that loves Halloween. I'm just geeking out. I'm so excited. Can't wait. Two more short hours, and I'll be in the theater rocking out to Michael Myers, Lori Strode, John Carpenter, 2018, Horror, Headfest, Halloween, yes. 
I just, I love that voicemail because I, as, as people on Twitter, as I saw them getting ready to go see Halloween, they were doing, you know, similar things as what Greg, Greg was saying there. But anyways, let's move into our feature review of Halloween 2018. Everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year. Yeah, I mean, your grandmother is Lori Strode. She was almost murdered. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No, it was not her brother. That's something that people made up. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? Who the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. The bus crashed. Mom, what bus crashed? Michael escaped. He's waited for this night. He's waited for me. I've waited for him. Get out! Go home! Get inside! It's 40 years later, and Michael Myers is being transported to a new facility. Laurie Strode has been anxiously awaiting his demise and has been preparing herself for all of these decades waiting for the evil to return and it's done something to her and her life her family her relationships but she's really steadfast in her belief that it's inevitable that he returns to the streets of Haddonfield and this is the story of what happens when Michael Myers makes his return <laughs> excellent now Justin how did you feel when you uh, saw that David Gordon Green was up to bat for this one? Because uh, are, you, are you a fan of his uh, other work? I honestly don't really know much of what he's done. I think he did Pineapple Express, mm -hmm. which I saw, and which is fine. Um, my my outlook on it was that I'm I'm open to anyone walking into this with a fresh perspective. And in a way, it's almost better if it's someone who doesn't come from years of working in the in the genre, because they can bring a fresh energy. Because that's really what that's what John brought to the first one. Mm -hmm. He wasn't he didn't have twenty horror films under his belt. He hadn't established any franchises or had a hand in anything like that. He was making sci-fi movies and stuff, and then he walks into this. So I was excited that someone knew was walking in with that kind of an outlook. And plus, if you want to look at it from a comedy standpoint, I think the combination of David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, if you're looking at comics, if you know anything about the entertainment business, you know comics are some of the darkest people. <laughs> and they, I mean, it's, they use their comedy to sort of escape from themselves and their worlds. And look at folks like Chris Farley, I mean, Belushi, the list goes on and on. So who, it certainly is possible that who better to understand darkness than someone who has spent so much time studying it and running from it in a way. So oh, I don't yeah. know. I, I was really open to it. What'd you guys think? Well, I mean, I think David Gordon Green, as someone I have followed his career kind of from the beginning um, with his first film, George Washington. Mm -hmm. And although most of his films are kind of these art house dramas, at least his earlier stuff, they had some real darkness to them. Even George Washington, his first film yeah. had a real darkness to it. Undertow, a real darkness to it. Snow angels is, it's, will destroy you. I mean, it is emotionally devastating. Yeah. Wow. Um, 
But and, Joe, and Joe, then, right? Josh, so, yeah. uh, we love Joe. Anyway, that's Joe, absolutely, one. yeah. But then you get into his comedies, um, and yeah, he's done some goofy stuff like Pineapple Express and The Sitter, which was a real black mark on his on his uh, resume there. But but man, he's done as you mentioned the Danny McBride comedies. He's directed um, episodes of Vice Principals and Eastbound and Down, and those, although they're comedies, have a really dark core. To, the, to some of those characters mm-hmm. and situations. I mean, they are really kind of messed up stuff, uh, you know, written also with Jody Hill, who, who uh, wrote um, observe and report. And so as you know, people who are familiar with um, that brand of comedy know that these guys, although yeah, are primarily comedians, they definitely have the capacity for darkness and, and knowing that David Gordon Green and, and Dan McBride are lifelong Halloween fans. I was really hopeful actually going into this. I thought, as you said, what, what an interesting opportunity for a fresh take on the material. We just come off of a year with um, Jordan Peele doing get out, which I, which I loved. And so I thought, yeah, maybe this is a really great opportunity uh, to see something new in the Halloween franchise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dave, what about you? Um, I, I haven't heard anything about your thoughts on this film yet. You saw it just this evening, right, Dave? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Geez, just about seven hours ago. Wow. It was my, my first time seeing it. And um, yeah, I, I was excited. I mean, you, you, you see all of the reactions on, on Twitter and the majority of them have been positive. And, uh, you go into it and you, you know, you see the trailer and everything, but I was genuinely, uh, I, I, I really had a great time. I really did. And it wasn't a full theater on Wednesday afternoon. You don't get many people in there. Um, but it was still a lot of, it was very, uh, engaging and very entertaining for me. I mean, I, I love the way it, it began that opening scene mm-hmm. and with David Gordon Green, um, uh, yeah, just to uh, sort of reiterate what Josh had said, he really does. Uh, well, he brings a fresh perspective, but he he really did have this dark past. I mean, you look at um, I, sp- I always go back to George Washington, which was his first movie. And that sort of just lingers in the darkness mm-hmm. um, and in the shadows. And uh, a lot of his movies, you know, did work that way. And if you look at him, I think when you look over the course of his career, those comedies are going to be what's sort of uh, out of place. Everything else, you know, not horror, but definitely, um, you know, definitely very disturbing. Yes. Uh, and I think that this one sort of fits right into that. And I, I liked, um, I did like where, where it went. And it was a nice combination of new, uh, new and old also, because yes, you have, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride. And then you also, on the other hand, have, uh, you know, John Carpenter involved. You have um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis involved. So it was sort of the the, the blending of these two worlds, um, you know, bringing them together. And I think that uh, that helped the movie a lot. I like what you said, Dave, about David Gordon Green and his characters, because um, a lot of them are wrestling with uh, demons of sorrow. And, and those drama films that, that Josh ran through and listed yeah, I mean, most of them have had some sort of tragedy or trauma in the past, and that's we, we see that in this film. That's kind of a theme that's um, teased out in this movie, and and about how how trauma can influence f- 
family members' lives and kind of ripple out in, into the generations. I love that about this. Yep. So, um, yeah, well, and I just want to say, Dave, you really did remind me. I like the way you put it that maybe when you look at the breadth of Danny, of uh, David Gordon Green's career, will be the comedies that stand out because I think most people are familiar with him due to his comedies because those were his kind of biggest budget, most mainstream films. Uh, you know, were like Pineapple Express and and uh, what was the, the goofy one that he did with um, the sitter. The sitter. Oh, the sitter. Prince, what was the other? The Prince Avalanche. Prince no, Av- no, Your Highness. Did you guys- oh, Your Highness. No, I didn't oh. see that one. Yeah. No, but yeah, I think I think you're right. I think if you do look at the breadth of his career, this actually fits in perfectly. And you can imagine Joe even taking place in the same universe that uh, <laughs> Halloween takes place in. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the opening, like one thing that made me instantly excited is in the opening credits, you still have the, you know, the, the orange font and orange letters and then, um, precede, you know, preceding the title card. I, that's something that horror, I think modern horror has done really well lately. I, I just love, like, I remember the opening of the conjuring, like, you know, there's the attention getting sequence and then bam, the title card is huge on the screen. And then this opening is great. And I love the, the jack-o'-lantern in the beginning. And, and it's that, that uh, resurrection of sorts that we've been talking about. I love how that is like visually depicted just right there in the opening. Now oh, that was clever. I thought, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I agree. So a few, a few things came to mind here and now just for the listeners, we're, we're initially going to be covering this film without spoilers, but then we'll give a spoiler warning and go into spoilers. Now I'm sure most people listening to this have seen it, but (laughs) anyways, I wanted to ask you guys about something as I was watching this film and, and getting all excited for Michael Myers to come back and get his mask back and and all that. um, it, It occurred to me that this is a, this is really an odd glamorization of a serial killer. I mean, I mean, he's, he's like a rock star of sorts and we're kind of rooting for him. And even the people in our theater were starting to cheer and get all excited. And, and you know what I mean? And, and I'm like, that's so weird. in 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 one sense that, you know, we, we, there's this glamorization of a serial killer. And I just wonder how you, what you guys think of that. Do you ever have any sort of like cognitive dissonance where you're a little bit torn over that it's like okay wait a second why am i rooting for a killer well i've had too many theatrical experiences with these films unfortunately um so this was one of my you know i mean i saw h2o in the in the theater but it'd been a while since i'd seen one of these in the theater and it was interesting because we just come off a very brutal scene in a bathroom um, which, you know, had a bit of a callback to H2O in and of itself, as well as Rob Zombie's Halloween. Um, and after that is the scene where Michael gets his mask. And we've just seen this guy just destroy a couple of human beings. And then we see him putting this mask on. The guy behind me was just like, oh, yeah, now it's on. You know, <laughs> I did have that moment of like, Oh, that's, that's a little dark, you know? <laughs> but you know, but I, but I was excited to see the mask on Michael too. And we've talked about this before that, that it kind of is the problem with the 80s slasher, right? As they start out 
with like Friday the 13th with a story about a mother and her son. And as the franchise continues and it becomes about Jason, now we're rooting for the killer. And so that necessitates that you have unlikable people for this killer to knock off. I don't think this movie did that. I don't think it had, uh, you know, just fodder for Michael. And in fact, this film gives, does a bit of a role reversal where um, it's arguable that Laurie is the aggressor in the film. And so it's, it's interesting. And we have, you know, we have a couple of lines about, you know, how a monster creates a monster mm-hmm. and you do start to wonder, um, have the tables been turned here a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and regarding that line, you know, I just, well, well, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. I want to talk to you about that monster creates a monster, but first I just want to ask Justin, uh, do you ever feel conflicted Justin when you're rooting for this monster? It's a weird thing. And this, this ties directly to the heart of what makes horror fans unique. And that's that we love the making of these things. We're as passionate about their construction as we are about the end result. And so I think that what we're witnessing in the theater, it's not like watching a true crime documentary where there's a bunch of garish crime scene photos or something that's, right. that's exploitive of a real person. Mm-hmm. this is these are there, there's an artistry to like i said earlier every element of what you're what's being presented and i think that we have a, a real unique respect for that and also a deep understanding of that and the mechanics behind that so it's i think we also love we have such emotion that's tied to these because we come into them at a young age yes and, and we carry the that resonates deeply like those experiences sleepovers with friends and weekends where you rent a stack of movies and just burn through them whatever it might be halloween night for me in fifth grade when i saw halloween 2 for the first time i'll never forget it (laughs) and so it isn't and i was terrified it's not about rooting for the killer it sounds strange to say it's more about the overall ambiance and the that's why familiarity means so much I think to a lot of fans, they've been spending 40 years now saying, why can't it be like the, for the original? Like, this isn't like the original. <laughs> well, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of special elements that came together on that. But ultimately, there's, there's just something about seeing, like understanding the presence. And th- this is one of my problems with this film. And I don't know how deep you want to get now into this, but there's a, pr- Michael has a presence. And it's, it's, as much about history when he appears on screen as it is about the childhoods of everyone who's watching as it is about the struggles to get these films made where they come and go over time as it is about what we have in our collections with our NECA figures and our masks and whatever else it might be like, this is part of a lifestyle. And I, I, there was one time when I, I used to work for in music retail, selling drums and guitars and stuff. And there's a couple of trade shows every year. I remember once boarding the plane with a, a store manager from an, another store in my chain. And I sat down in the back of the plane and I pulled out an issue of Fango and I started flipping through it. He's like, Oh my God, how can you read that? I'm like what? <laughs> that murder magazine. And that was genuinely the first time I had ever considered the horror being about murder. Does that sound crazy? <laughs> no, no. Just I, a little bit. I didn't. Well, I never thought about it being like. I mean, obviously, it's about 
like that's an element, but uh, I don't know. But struggle, no, I I haven't ever struggled with it. As a father, I'm I'm much more aware since my son was born of the things that I'm a part of. And I have thought about that over time. That was part of the genesis of the Scare Foundation when we founded that was like, well, let's give back to the community that's given us so much, which is teenagers. And so we created this thing to combat, to work to combat teenage homelessness and poverty. It's like getting horror people engaged in that way felt good. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's an interesting question, but I, I, I don't think I've ever really felt a struggle per se. Just building on what you were saying about the audience investment, I think maybe part of that reaction that the guy in the theater behind me had was oh good you know they got the mask right you know i think and i think we do become invested in these little details like you're saying i know for me i was giddy when i heard the music because i i've been wanting it to be just right for months if not <laughs> years and so then to hear john carpenter yeah. underscoring this cinematic experience that i'm having and it being so good for me i just thought okay yes it's happening. And, you know, and there's so much, such a great emotional payoff yeah. for me just it, because of that investment that I have. In it. Yeah. And I do think it is uh, some sort of a, um, like, you know how they say uh, I've luckily, thankfully I've, I haven't been addicted to drugs in the past, but, but I, I'm told that there's that chasing the first high kind of thing and you can never get quite get back there again. Um, it reminds me of that. It's like, um, if they do get it right, Josh, like you were saying, or like Justin was saying, it, it reminds me of like, if it's a roller coaster, it's not that you necessarily, you know, love the roller coaster as much as you love the, the, the way the roller coaster makes you feel, you know, while, while experiencing it. And and maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what people are rooting for, or maybe they just love Michael Myers. I mean, maybe it is straight up. They just love him. <laughs> yeah. But, they could just like, yeah. Which is killers, which is fine, I guess. But that's your thing. But uh, there's also a Godfather element to this too, because Halloween is is such a point of it's like a genesis point for the genre in a lot of ways, and Mm -hmm. so there's a respect that comes along with that, like when the Pope walks in the room or whatever, if you're Catholic or whoever it might be, the Godfather, whatever. Like Michael Myers is the king; he's the guy, and. And for people who may feel that he had been mishandled over time, whatever their opinions were, this, I I think a big part of the discussion to be had about this film is the mere fact that Carpenter agreed to be part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is something that I don't know if you want to touch on now, but I mean, I I think that absolutely go for it. That one of the things that he told me years ago was he's like, it's a lose, lose scenario. I, I, he said, I've been offered every sequel. They, always, they ask me every time, and he said, no matter what my role is going to be, it's going to be a losing proposition because there's nothing I could do or I could be a part of that would ever be able to touch what this has become. And when words, early words started coming out that he was coming on board as a producer for this, even before they announced he was going to score, I was like, man, that carries some weight. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that he would choose to return. And then there's the stories yeah. of of uh, them walking into his office and pitching this thing to him, uh, David and, and Danny and Carpenter allegedly just being wowed. You know, he even said that he's like, these guys get it. And what they brought in was really special. And I'm thinking, so I'm sitting down in the theater and I was there opening night, second screening in our town here and sat down with, 
I tried to go in as a blank slate. I didn't watch any additional footage. I just saw the trailer. I left it at that. I wasn't into any spoilers. I wanted to know nothing walking in. And I successfully navigated those waters pretty well being off all social media, but Twitter, but sitting down, I knew that there was this other thing that was nagging and it was, but I know Carpenter came back for a reason. And that builds in an expectation for certain things. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what they are. They're in, intangibles. Who knows? But there was some thing or things that drew him in. And I kept thinking throughout the running time, like, all right, when am I going to find it? Where, <laughs> where is he? Like, like, what brought him back? So, and we can explore this further, but I thought that was a really interesting element to this thing. Yeah. And I thought even if it was only for selfish reasons, like even if he only wanted to come back because his music career was kind of going again, and this was an opportunity for him to come in and do a, a big score that was tied to his, his Genesis. Um, great. Like bring everything you have to the score because that's going to only make the film better. But, you know, I heard an interview with uh, Carpenter and, and Jason Blum, and I think Jason Blum's involvement had a lot to do with it because I think Carpenter saw Jason Blum as this kind of new, powerhouse in the yeah. horror genre mm-hmm. and for Jason Blum to come to him and say, you know, we want to make this and we all we care about is making a good movie and we want you involved. And, and for him to come to him that way. Most horror fans favorite movie is Halloween. Considering the movie's 40 years old, that is an extraordinary feat. And so it felt like there was time to, to kind of reinvent it. And he's produced a lot of really great movies and uh, he came in to me and said, uh, hey, let's make a really good Halloween. Let's make a great one. It's not about money. It's not about anything. It's about let's make a great movie. So I was impressed with that. But I, I talked to the rights holders and I said I, I really wasn't going to go forward and didn't want to reinvent it unless John did it. And I remember actually when we were talking, I said, I said, it's probably going to get made with or without us. It'll be better if you and I get in there and I'm not doing it without you. And so that was kind of how it started. I'm not going to make it without you. And I only want to make it if it's a good film. Like that says a lot. Yeah. And so I think, I feel like we owe Blumhouse a big debt of gratitude for anything good that came of this project, because I feel like they at least tried to do this the right way. They, I feel like they took every opportunity to kind of make this do right by the fans and do right by John Carpenter, you know, mm-hmm. and JB Lee Curtis. Yeah. Sure. And and Dave, do you feel like that was accomplished? Dave, do you feel like they, they did it the right way by the fans? You know, I, I, I do. And again, it's, it's, I mean, well, Jay, I think you've seen it once, but uh, Justin, have you, you've seen it more than once at this I've point? Twice, yeah. Yeah. And I know Josh, you've seen it more than once at this point. Yeah. I've seen it twice as well. Yeah. yeah and I'm just trying to sort of, I'm still sort of processing everything and going through it, but, um, as far as the experience, yes, I had a good experience with it. And I was, as a fan, I was there. I was on board with what was happening. And we can get into a little bit more of the details and sort of work that out as as, as we go along here. I really like the way they open the movie. You know, and, and you get the idea that, okay, this is now a different timeline. Because now we're ignoring everything that happened after the first Halloween and when I heard that, I was sort of interested because when you hear that Jamie Lee's coming back, you know, your first idea is, OK, well, this is picking up after H2O or whatever. But then they really couldn't do that. So I like the way that they took it from the start. So I went in there with with uh, with high expectations. And, yeah, I'd say 
probably the majority of them have been met. Mm -hmm. Side note, Dave, to answer your question, I've actually seen it one and a half times. Just wanted to throw that out there because, oh, okay. because I went on my lunch break and just watched the first hour again. <laughs> Oh, no, okay. Yeah, I went. To, I love the intro <laughs> yeah, so much, and um, yeah, I only had an hour, so but but anyways, no, I like what you said, Dave, and and I, and I think you're right. I mean, I feel that way now. Josh, earlier you mentioned about how this film suggests that a monster creates a monster, and I, there is a little bit of it. Reminds me of that whole Batman Joker relationship, and they talk about that in the Dark Knight. How the Joker says that. You know, Batman, the, the two of them kind of rely on each other in order to exist or they exist because of each other. Do you guys feel that that is the case with Michael Myers and Laurie Strode? And if so, like, do you think that's the right way to go? Do you does that make sense to you? Because I, I, well, Dr. Sartain hmm. in this film certainly believed that that was the case. Right. And as well did uh, the podcasters they also seem to believe that that was the key i don't know if that means that we the audience are supposed to necessarily believe that but um i mean i think that leads to me to one of my major problems with the film and actually it was matroid who brought this to my attention uh when we first when we saw the film on sunday night you know he he said this has a terminator 2 kind of aspect to mm -hmm. it where the the Laurie Strode that we see in this film is is far removed from the Laurie Strode we saw in the original film, and it's kind of jarring to see this transformation without seeing anything that happened in between. In Terminator Two, it's it's reasonable because she knew about this coming threat, and she knew that she had only a certain amount of time to prepare for that, and so we can imagine that she spent that time doing it. With this film, if if Laurie and Michael are not related. If we've taken out the, the backstory of part two, if, if she's just one random girl on a night that he killed many random girls. And we see that as he, when he comes back, he, he again is going on essentially a door to door killing spree. He's not necessarily, uh, he doesn't have like a, a really specific plan. Like we see play out in, you know, Halloween four and five and six, where he's going after, you know, cousins and, and neighbors and things like that, that are related to his original sin or his um, prior evil, and prior evil. In, in this case, he's just, it, it seems odd that she would expect that he, he would be coming for her. It, it's not unreasonable as a trauma survivor to be obsessed with the notion that this guy might come for you. But to think that that was an inevitability and for it kind of to turn out to be an inevitability, that seems like it stretches reason for me a little bit. And, mm -hmm. and I do have other issues with the film. I don't think it's a perfect film by any means, but it is one of those things. A lot of my complaints with it are those things that super fans kind of start nitpicking about. And my experience is, is that as I've just been seeing reactions online it's that the people who are kind of a little bit more casual Halloween fans seem to, I hope no one's mad at me for saying this, seem to be more forgiving of the film. And the people who are really invested in it seem to have a little, a few more nitpicks about the way things are, were executed. But. Well, let me try to help on that if I may. So yeah, like, the, I feel like the Terminator two 
um, analogy is very obvious. And in fact, I was getting that vibe even from the trailers. I mean, I feel like that's very prevalent, but I don't, I don't feel like it's a bad thing just because so many horror films have a final girl and then, you know, she's victorious at the end and she survives and it's like, great. But this film actually addresses, well, what happens to a final girl? What is the aftermath of that? And, and how does that resonate throughout her life? Yeah. And, and, and I love that. That's because, fantastic. I love that. That's my favorite element of the film. Yeah, me too. And, and, and that's what's cool about Sarah Connor as well. So I, I appreciate that. Now, um, I do agree that it's like, okay, why, why is Michael Myers dead set on taking her out? And I don't know. The only thing I could do with it not that there has to be an answer because he's pure evil, right? But but what the only thing I could really do with that was like, well, um, she was the one that got away and he wants to finish the job. You know, he's got this, you know, he remembers that, yep, I need to kill her. <laughs> Justin, what what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I had to see it a second time almost right away because I was really, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I was struggling with it big time when I first walked out. And that night I went with my buddy and we walked out of the theater and he looked at me and he's like, so, and I said, I hated it. <laughs> I was, I was so mm-hmm. frust- frustrated with the movie and mm-hmm. I, and, and then I was upset that I hated it. <laughs> and so he and I sat here and dissected that for like two hours that night. And then I had some friends who came and visited over the weekend and it became another endless just, you know, dissection session on what this thing was. And so that's why on, on Monday I had to go see it again. So I'm like, I have to find the key here. I have to find it. I, I really want to be happy with this thing. And um, I came to terms with some things, seeing it a second time. The first time you go in, you're taking in everything. There's so much to take in any movie, right? I think all movies should be seen like twice at least. Mm-hmm. And this is the situation where, the second time really did help in some ways, but the overriding stuff still is very, very loud and sort of stands screaming in front of all of the efforts that they've made to do something else to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I still very much struggle with this film and honestly, I'm not a huge fan of it. So I, I do have an answer to the question I posed, but I do feel like it might require a spoiler discussion. So I'm going to save it, but maybe we could just table that okay. pin in that item for a minute for now yeah that sounds good Uh, okay so let me um let me i i don't mean to ruffle feathers but it's what i do (laughs) like i don't i i just want to ask so everybody is probably familiar that i i I love the slash film cast i'm a big fan of that podcast and david chin on there is not necessarily a how halloween fan but but it it struck me funny i mean he, he said that he wasn't overly He's never really overly interested in the Michael Myers character as a concept. And he, and he said, there's really not much to that character because he doesn't talk. You don't really find out a ton about him. You know, he's just pure evil. He's just the killing machine. That's what he is. And even his mask, which is like his, his affectation, like the thing that you associate with him, even the mask is still pretty, um, I guess, uh, well, there's not much to the mask either, right? So I, I wonder what you guys, as as mega fans, I, what is your fascination with with him as as a character, as pure evil? Is it is it the the boogeyman concept? I mean, what is it that 
that draws you to Michael Myers? Well, for me, I grew up in Iowa. I still live in Iowa. And it's the first time I had been presented with something as a kid that was that felt real and that felt dangerous. And up until that point, it was all universal monsters. And it was things from outer space. It was the blob, whatever. Those are all things that are really easy to distance yourself from. But when there's a guy in your closet <laughs> and he comes out, I mean, you can't help, someone mentioned earlier, the mask, you can't help but project all of your own fears and insecurities onto that face. It's just made to be painted, right? Mm -hmm. And that's going to happen. Everybody in the audience is going to be doing that, whether they realize it or not. And so this thing that was in a house that looked like my house in a neighborhood that looked like my neighborhood doing very human things, not, and I hadn't yet discovered Friday the 13th and people being bent in half and all the rest of this. <laughs> it was this very organic thing that was like, man, you know what? This is legitimately scary. And it is because it is so human. So the boogeyman aspect didn't ever really click with me, the whole evil side of it. I didn't have a problem with him being quote unquote humanized in Rob's films, for example, like, a, like some people do. Because for me, it was always more about the scary thing being the man. And so I, I, I'm all, I, <laughs> this is going to be a weird line to draw, but bear with me a second here. Take your time. I grew up a Kiss fan. And Kiss is more than just their music, right? They are a, a thing. They're a, a, an art piece. They have identifiable characters that they step into when they go on stage, not like any other band who just goes up and they're just themselves. Like mm -hmm. everyone in Kiss becomes something else. They're, and their show is bombastic and big and it has its own personality and it's immediately identifiable. And there's an ownership that comes with clicking with something like that where people love to dig into the history on it. And Kiss and Halloween are very similar in that regard where people pour over every tiny little element of everything relating to it, endlessly cataloging every show Kiss has done, every time they did a variant set list, the different makeup choices that were made when Gene started adding the, the wings, whatever else it might be. And in Halloween, it's all about the jumpsuit, the boots, the hand burns, the mask, of course. It's all these different elements there. And so it's a similar thing that, it's, just, it's like with Jason's the same way, with Freddy's the same way. These, these guys are a piece of art that you associate, that you attach yourself to because it's immediately identifiable, it's different, and it's unique. And the simplicity of it is really appealing because they're easy to watch. And they really, this franchise, for anyone who loves Halloween, the season of fall and the holiday of Halloween, Truth be told, there aren't that many movies that get it right. There just aren't. And for, mm -hmm. for it being a time of year that we swim in, <laughs> we have so little to reference as, as celebratory cinematic elements with this. Like now we have trick or treat. Mm -hmm. We have some other things now because our generation's making this stuff. But historically, it was like scary movies. Okay, it's a castle. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's whatever. It's just a, insert horror setting here but didn't really capture fall. And I think that's one of the things that makes this franchise perfect in its synchronicity with the season where it, it takes place because it's going to occur every year. Mm -hmm. You're going to step into this universe every single year and walk the streets of Haddonfield every single year in your own life. If you live in the Midwest, like I do, 
And so it's instantly relatable. Nostalgia is there. It it's around you every year that you're in it. And especially like when we get to Halloween four, the opening credit sequence in Halloween four is, is the purest Midwestern fall thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any film that, that mm-hmm. so perfectly nails what it's like <laughs> and how it feels from the, from Alan Howler sort of like ghosting score over that, holding those long breathy notes to the shots, the pumpkin and the scythe and the mailbox and everything. It just it hits it right on the head. And that puts you right there. Mm-hmm. That puts yep. you right there. So there's more to it than just Michael Myers. It's this whole universe that we love to be a part of. And building on that, when I saw this with Kagan on Thursday night, the, you know, the, the original screening, he talked about how Halloween-y this new film was, how it felt like trick-or-treating as a kid. And there's it spent so much time in the kind of trick-or-treating world. It, it really did capture that feeling for me. But yeah, Justin, I beautifully said you're a poet. I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I respond to both versions of Michael Myers. I think um, I really love the character stuff just because I, I love good character development in any type of cinema. So I, I really enjoyed Rob Zombie's exploration into young Michael. Um, I also really enjoyed um, Halloween H2O where we have that scene with Adam Arkin and Jamie Lee Curtis. And she taught, she reveals that Michael Myers was her brother. My brother killed my sister when she was 17. Well, that's sucky. (laughs) How'd he do that? With a really big, sharp kitchen knife. They locked him up for a long time. But he got out and he came after me. But I got away. But he killed a lot of my friends. It happened on On Halloween. Halloween. You've heard the story. Who hasn't? Michael Myers. It's like 20 years ago, right? 1978. And the girl, that, what happened to the sister? She died, right? No, she faked her death. And now she's the headmistress of a very posh, secluded private school in Northern California. What? Hoping and praying every year that her brother won't find her. I love that kind of deep character stuff going on in a, mm-hmm. in a movie like this, yeah. but I'm also totally into the shape of fear. You know, that idea that in, in a lot of ways, fear doesn't have a shape, right? Like, and it becomes less scary. The more defined it is Danny McBride, when he talked about taking on this property said he wanted to, Bring it back to that feeling when you're taking out the garbage at night and you feel like something's watching you in the darkness. Mm -hmm. Like that is what fear is to me. And when I look out my window, when I'm locking my windows at night, if I'm feeling freaked out or I look up the street, you know, at the uh, porch light from my neighbor's house, it's Michael Myers. I expect to see standing under that light. It's Michael Myers. I expect to see standing in my backyard, you know, and it's because as Justin said, he's this icon of, of fear, you know, and I think there is just something about that shape and, and, uh, and maybe it is just that early imprint that a lot of us had watching these movies, but 
Um, but I do think there's also something to him being a little plain, a little amorphous and being able to kind of imagine that ghostly figure in any kind of context, but a ghostly figure that's flesh and bone and real and could be standing there with the kitchen knife. Mm -hmm. Well said guys. By making it a human, but inhuman by making it a human, but expressionless by making him human, but no sound, but breathing, making him move slowly and deliberately makes you think you can outrun him, but he kills so viciously and with such disregard, it has no rhyme or reason. It is terrorism. It is the ultimate reason why terrorism scares us so much, because it's random. And in his case, I think the enigmatic nothingness um, allows us to project. He's like a movie screen. We project everything onto his face, and we project all of that fear that we feel. That's excellent. I wondered how you guys felt about this, too, is... I noticed that in this film, uh, of, of course, like in the first film, he, he is, um, you know, slowly kind of plotting, like always coming for you, right? But when he's actually engaged in a physical altercation or he's killing somebody, he, he actually picks up speed quite a bit and he moves fast. And, um, and I, I kind of loved that in this film, that he was fast moving when, when it was on, when the action was on. And I just wondered if you, if you purists had, had any problems with that or what you thought about his speed in attacking. I, I loved it. I loved it, too. I thought that was one of the more interesting aspects here. You would think that he, if, he, if he was sitting in there pining for the day that he would have freedom, be able to do this again, maybe. I don't know. They don't really say. Mm -hmm. But maybe he would be a little over anxious. He's sort of a smelling blood in the water in a way, just looking at houses as nothing but opportunities for him to go in and, and raise some hell. And for him to walk <laughs> in and be excited for that makes sense after 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. totally. I heard Nick Castle talk about how he approached his movement as kind of a cat. It was like a house cat was what he thought of. It's like nature's perfect killing machine. And uh, James Jude Courtney, I heard him say that, you know, he kind of amped that up to to a jungle cat, like, a, <laughs> you know, he, he wanted to be a predator, but he wanted to keep that kind of smooth movement that Nick Castle brought to the role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a ferocity to it. And I, and I think that that surprise, because you don't really expect that. Like I wasn't expecting that. And he is slow moving a lot of the time until he's attacking. And because of that, it, it heightens, it amps up the fear and the ferocity and it made it more brutal for me. But, um, what, what did you make of them not quite showing his face straight on? I mean, they, they teased that really well in this film. And you can almost see it a couple of times, a little bit, but not quite. Yeah. I, I wish it had been Nick Castle since he was on set anyway. You know, like, I, I think it's a shame that they used um, James Jude Courtney since um, they had Nick Castle right there. <laughs> you know, he could have been, he could have been the guy or, or why not bring Tony Moran back since we've seen his face as Michael Myers on screen before, that would be a, a cool opportunity to throw him back in there and, uh, and see Michael's face again mm -hmm. as well. But yeah, I, I liked it. I, I like that. They never quite show it. I love that. It's so, you know, that we keep him mysterious and, mm -hmm. 
and he becomes Michael when he puts that mask on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, that's his face, right? Right. <laughs> that's it really, like is. we were talking about earlier, <laughs> like now he has his face. <laughs> um, so, and I'm, I'm sorry, I have so many things. You guys are welcome to take this in a different direction if you want. Um, but I am stuck on a few Michael Myers things that I'm excited about. Like in, in the first film, 1978, um, I love the way that they end up putting the monster in the closet because that is a almost a universal fear, especially for children. There's a monster in my closet, right? Well, um, and we know from the trailers, I mean, we see it in the trailers for people. Um, so hopefully everybody's seen the trailer who's listening to this, that they managed to put him in the closet in a very, in a very literal way, the, the same way that kids fear the monster in the closet in this. And I really appreciate that too. Because <laughs> when I saw that in the trailer, I'm like, okay, how are they ever going to put him in there in an organic way? But I feel like they pulled it off. I actually kind of hate that they put that in the trailer. Because mm-hmm. I think that would have been a really cool moment sort of yeah. a moment of discovery um and and it would have you know one as as and if you've seen the trailer again uh, you know this the door's closed and it's not closing it's not closing you know if you're sitting in the audience you'd be like oh damn it you know you sort of know what's about to happen <laughs> but the trailer i don't know i felt that robbed us uh, of that a little bit but i liked that moment too and i liked it for the reasons you had said jay i thought that was uh and it's especially for when you think of what led up to that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in a Dave, to touch on that point about the trailer in a film with very few true moments, I think yeah. that they gave, I think they gave every single one of them away in the trailer. And I think that mm-hmm. that really did the film a disservice in a, in a big way, but speaking to the, to the closet thing, it, I, when I did the re-release in 2012, we did a new trailer for it. And I wanted the moment where Lori's up against the wall and Michael emerges from the darkness behind her in the closet and then slashes at her. That to me was, is the heart of what makes that film work mm. and speaks to both their characters in a lot of ways. And so I made that the centerpiece of the trailer. It, it sort of slowly leads to that point and then it's off to the races from there, but that needed to be the starting point in my mind. And I think that the difference between the two here is as stark an example of how they mishandled things in this film as can, as you can find, there was no reason for him to be in that closet. There was no reason for him to be in that house short of wanting to have some playtime. But what if no one would have even entered that room? What if the kid was his target, he didn't attack him. If the girl was his target, he did, he chose to be upstairs with the kid instead of her. Like it's such a confusing approach to to why he would be doing any of this stuff and and one of my biggest problems with the movie as a whole is that he's given no presence on screen as much as i love carpenter and i love his scoring and i love his music his albums are incredible and geez you can't say enough wonderful things and listening to the score on its own i love it but it didn't always seem to line up with what was going on on screen to me and i think it underserved for example michael's arrival in that scene where you see him put the mask on, then it cuts to some other stuff. And the next thing he steps out and it's Halloween night. He's in the midst of all the trick or treaters, but he walks out with no fanfare. The shot is like a mid range shot. There's no like stinger when he comes on screen. There's no presence to him. He just sort of walks on and does his thing. 
And but that score, the, the classic Halloween score starts right as he goes for that first, you know, uh, alleyway that he's going on. And so I do think there's a, a certain artistry to that because it's kind of like, okay, now we're back in Michael mode. The score comes back in and then it gets brutal. I mean, it gets really brutal from yeah. that point on. Yeah. I hear you though. I mean, I, 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 I do think, you know, Kagan pointed this out again, they do something interesting with Lori's theme in this that they haven't done before. And I do think that there is an element that this movie is really more about Lori and, um, and not that the other movies weren't, but you know, this, this seems like more than ever, it's about her internal experience. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that the music maybe supports that as well. Mm-hmm. What about, um, how did you guys feel about him? I mean, I, I felt like, obviously in the first film, Kyle Bishop, Dr. Rocking Dead loves and appreciates this aspect. How, if you watch very closely in the 1978 film, he is in the background of a lot of shots and, and maybe the first or, you know, second time that you see it, you don't notice it. But then when you start looking for him, you see him a remarkable number of times. And, and just seeing this, my second, my half of a second time, <laughs> I already discovered him in, in other shots. Like, um, and I won't go into details here cause we're not in spoilers, but in the gas station, uh, sequence, um, mm-hmm. he is, he is throughout that, that sequence and those scenes, he's in the back. You can see him in the background a lot of times. I mean, he's, he's a little bit out of focus and he's obscured, but you can see some interesting things with him. Uh, so I admire that part of it. Um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. um, and, and, and speaking of that, I feel like this film does a great job of doing a lot of nods and homages. Like there are so many references and maybe you guys will cite specifics and in, in spoilers, but, but I, I really appreciated that because, you know, I'm not even a super fan, but I, I still picked up on a number of things that they were um, referencing uh, from not just the first film, but I think I picked up things from the franchise even from other films in the franchise in this. And I thought that I was pretty I think you cool. can find a reference, yeah, to every movie in the franchise if you look hard enough. I mean, mm-hmm. there were a couple even from Resurrection that I thought, is that from Resurrection? And I think I think they right. may have been. <laughs> yeah. No. So any anything else you guys want to discuss in the non-spoiler section while we're here um, before we go into the ratings for the listeners? I, I was curious, actually, to see what... Um, uh, everyone's take might be on the new doctor. Uh, you know, cause Loomis was as much uh, a part of those earlier movies and a great part. I thought with Donald Pleasance, um, uh, of those earlier movies. And he was the one, you know, I, that, that line, that great line of, I spent eight years trying to reach him in the next seven, trying to lock him away forever. Um, and what your <laughs> thoughts right, were on, on where they went with this new doctor, because I'm still a little unsure. I, I think I have to see it again. As Justin was saying, I think this is a movie that actually screams. You have to, you have to see it more. Uh, most movies do, but this one, especially you have to see it more than once because I'm still a little unsure on the doctor. And I'm just, just interested what your guys take might be. I thought Dr. Sartain was great at the beginning. I, you know, I, he was not a, not a, 
an amazing character, but he was fine. And I liked that, you know, I liked that Lori rightly points out, Oh, you're the new Loomis. Like I thought that was kind of funny <laughs> where his character goes is my least favorite part of the entire movie by a long shot. I think it almost ruined the movie for me mm-hmm. on my first viewing. Agreed. I hated where his character went in this movie. I mean, loathed it. Yeah. Because I felt like it was the one element of the film that didn't feel organic. I feel like, a lot of this movie felt like here's what would really happen in real life 40 years after this hugely traumatic event. Here's where these characters might be. And maybe it's not exactly where I think they would be, but you know, it's believable. Like in a real world setting, this is where people could end up. On the other hand, like his character felt like this Machiavellian plot. It felt very much part of a bigger franchise kind of character than just the simplicity of what, David Gordon Green kind of had promised and had delivered for most of the movie. Yeah. See, I I had the same feelings you did, Josh. And I just wondered if they were just trying so hard because obviously, yeah, they acknowledged up front. Okay. Yeah. Everybody's going to think, okay, this is the new Dr. Loomis. So they even like specifically stated like explicitly, but I wondered if that whole his story arc, let's say, his story arc is just a matter of them trying to, um, you know, give us some variety. I-, I wondered about that, but I don't love it either, to be honest. I look there forward to digging a- in on this in the, in like the spoiler section yes. okay. to really yeah. discussing this element of it. But I think yes. w- what I'll say in this phase of our conversation is that I think he was one of the most potentially intriguing characters in the thing for me. Mm-hmm. And while also serving as that Loomis kind of comfort food in a way, I, I couldn't stand when she said, you're the new Loomis. I thought, Jesus Christ, how much more, <laughs> you just want to hand this right to the audience, don't you? But, <laughs> but that was funny. Well, well, but funny. See, that's the thing. Like, okay. well, the thing is, is it's so, it's so in your face already. Like for her to just kind of put a name to it, to me, it was kind of like, look, we're not, we know we're not fooling anyone here. Right. right. That's what I felt. I don't know. It's no, like, it. it's too meta, it. but it's Eminem rap battle tactic where you, you take the ammo from them ahead of time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, I get you. Um, any, anything else you guys want to talk about before we uh, give our ratings and then move to the spoiler section? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we've said it enough. I mean, at least I haven't addressed it enough for, for my taste. I really love where Laurie Strode went. Um, I get, minus the elements we talked about where I don't know if it really um, is justified. But I but I really love the portrayal of Laurie Strode by Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie. I could have seen one or two more movies building up to this version of Laurie Strode. But where we find her is, I think, fascinating uh, and I, I to me her trauma is the reason to watch this movie. Her the way she has responded to her trauma, I should say. I, I thought the young cast was pretty good. I think you know with any horror slasher movie, you always have you know a, a bevy of teens that you're going to have to deal with. And I thought that these kids were interesting and and quirky and and real in a way that I that I think um, really benefited from. Danny McBride's writing and I could really hear his voice in a lot of these characters. And I liked um, just a a lot of the supporting cast had these weird little quirky moments that I thought for me gave them shape and and made them feel more well-rounded than just 
cannon fodder. You know, the, the, they at least felt like people, human beings to me. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. Mm. Yeah. And I loved the perform. I liked the performance of Michael Myers as well by James Jude Courtney and Nick Castle, whoever was playing what I, I really liked the way Michael Myers looked in this film. I thought it was an, a nice mix between um, Tyler Maine, who I love and the original kind of Nick Castle performance, which I love. And mm-hmm. This felt like it was kind of writing the line between those type, those two type modes, I suppose for Michael. And I, I yeah, it reminded me, I suppose maybe mostly of Halloween H2O, which I, a fan of but even a little more blue collar a little more um you know calluses on his hands kind of working class michael so do you guys do you think um this is probably obvious to most people but i'm just checking <laughs> do you think they did that with the casting because um as in as is the case with the past they would have different people in in the michael myers outfit and so he would always look kind of kind of different somewhat um, so did they do it for that or did they do it because Nick Castle's getting up in years and it'd be hard for him to be super ferocious. So do you think it's the mixture of both or why was there multiple people cast? My theory on that was that they were, they made a lot of effort in all the press and what was being shared to let everyone know that they understood the meaning of the rest of the franchise to everyone. And I think that they wanted to bring in as many original elements as they could to further solidify for fans sort of a reassurance, like, you know what, it's going to be okay. Like, we get it. We're not going to have him chasing babies and hanging out with cults. Like, this is going to be different. You can trust (laughs) us. And I think that having him there was a big part of that. The only scene Nick Castle played Michael in was he was upstairs uh, when she sees his reflection in the mirror and shoots at the mirror. That's the only scene Nick Castle's in. And so it's not, he's not doing any of the walking. He's not doing any of the other action stuff. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with his age, but for him to even have been there for that bit, I mean, that set the fan base on fire Mm -hmm. and that became Mm -hmm. such a legitimizing moment for them to say, okay, Carpenter. Yes. Jamie Lee. Yes. But to go to that next level, because the general audience is going to have no idea who Nick Castle is. Right. But the horror fans absolutely know. And that just instantly gave it all the street cred that you could wish for. <laughs> I did not realize that was his only appearance in the, in the film. I didn't know that. Yeah. They, they just put out a behind the scenes featurette, like a little t- portion of a behind the scenes featurette where they talk about it. And they, sh- he talks about that being his scene and they show him shooting it and sort of hanging out there. It's, it's pretty neat. If you check it out, I'd, it's, it's all over the entertainment sites mm-hmm. to see that. But anyway, a little cool. tease, a little look into that world. That's awesome. Okay, so listeners, here's what we're going to do. Unless you guys think of anything else you want to talk in the non-spoiler section. We're, we're going to give you our ratings in case you want to hear whether we, we think you should see the film or not. Give you our, our um, rating and recommendation. And then in this particular episode, we're going to have the spoiler section a little later on. And then if you, if you want to hear it right this second, then I guess you could look in the show notes at, um, show notes of episode 159 at horrormoviepodcast.com and you could see the timestamp and jump to it. But, um, just for fun, right, Josh, we're going to put it, the spoilers a little later on in the show, right? Yeah. Well, I'm probably is the last section of the show. Okay. Yeah. And that's just so, 
you know, if people haven't seen the film yet, you know, you don't have to fast forward or whatever. You can so. just enjoy the rest of the episode, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, yeah, let's move into our um, ratings and recommendations then, and let's start off with uh, Dr. Shock. Give us your your number and your recommendation. All right. Um, and I'm really looking forward to when we get to the spoiler section because I have a, a more to say there than I did in this section. Same here. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, I'm going to go with a first reaction. I'm going to go with an, I'll say an eight, and I'd say it's it's worth checking out. Okay, you see it in the theater? You tell people to see it in the theater? See it in the theater, definitely. Yeah, I, I would say see it in the theater. Okay, and then is this going to be a buy for you on Blu-ray? Do you tell people to buy it, or is well, it a, a rental? Well, a buy for me is, a, is different from everybody else, but yeah, I'm going to buy it on Blu-ray, so yeah. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I buy everything. Okay, Dave says 8 out of 10, see it in the theater and buy it. And um, I'll go next. And, and let me just say one thing. I, I get a lot of grief. Uh, for my rating of the original Halloween, which is a high rating for me. I, I, I can't say that enough. Like, I, I do enjoy it. But for my um, MTV generation, you know, it, it it's a little bit deliberately paced. It's a little bit slow for my personal tastes. And I know people get really ticked off about that. I'm sorry. But let me just say, so even though I actually, I like this, I rate this higher technically than the first Halloween, which by the wow. way, yeah, I rate the first Halloween 7.5 out of 10. And um, I know people get really astounded by that, but that's fine. Yeah. But the thing is, even though my rating is higher, this film is in, I think what makes this film great to me is its roots in the original Halloween. So, you know, if that, if that original film didn't exist, then this wouldn't have nearly the power obviously so i just wanted to put that out there but this is a nine out of ten for me i freaking love this movie i felt like they took a slasher film a modern slasher and they did it right so many times we lament and say why why can't you just have a killer who is a brutal slasher and just takes out people and and have a little bit of heart to it, you know. And, and I mean, it had all those elements for me. And I think it's a respectful treatment of Halloween and, and Michael Myers. So, I mean, this is a 9 out of 10. I say see it in the theater, and this is a buy. I'm definitely going to buy this film. It was, um, thus far, it's been my one of my most enjoyable um, experiences in the theater this whole year. All right, uh, Justin, what's your rating and recommendation, sir? I would give it a six, and I absolutely see it in the theater and a buy for sure. I mean, I'm a collector, and I would never not support the Halloween films, however I could. I would give the caveat, I would say, when you're going into the theater, if you haven't seen this thing yet, watch the original and really do your best to leave everything else at the door when you walk into the theater, all the sequels, the remake, all that stuff, just leave it and try to consider the rules of the first film, the elements of the first film, walking into this being all that you know. So if you can do that, if you can successfully navigate that, then I think you'll have an even more enjoyable experience than, than otherwise. But I would say it's a six for me. That is great advice, by the way. I'm glad you mentioned that, Justin, because, yeah, I think it's 
for me, I think it's absolutely necessary to see the original 1978 in order to get the full impact of this one. So that's a great recommendation. Okay, Wolfman Josh, bring us home with your rating on this. First, Jay, I just wanted to say I really liked your Twitter review that you did, and you didn't restate a lot of those elements, so I wanted to just <laughs> read it if I could. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you so. mentioned this was maybe your most memorable theater-going experiences here, but um, mm-hmm. I liked you said, shockingly, I felt like I was the one being stalked during this movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, I thought that was a that was an interesting uh, comment and uh, and one that I really thought about on my second viewing. Um. You also said entertaining, brutal slasher. Love seeing the three determined female characters. That's something we haven't really talked about, but I, I, I did think the, the three strode women it was a, were a nice addition to this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the brutality, I, I think that's maybe something else I want to mention to people who aren't going to listen to the spoiler section yet. I think this is a, much more brutal, I would say, in terms of on-screen violence than... Uh, the 1978 original, I, you know, it's not maybe as far, certainly not as far as Rob Zombie goes and not as far as some of the other sequels. But I would say, again, this for me was a nice mid ground between the most brutal Michael we've seen and kind of the more sophisticated, maybe horror filmmaking of John Carpenter's classic. Um, I've seen this twice. I would, had a lot of issues with it. My first time I felt really conflicted about it. I enjoyed my experience, but I just felt very, very conflicted. I would say my appreciation appreciation went up about 75% on my second viewing. And I was able to kind of solve some of my issues with it that were bothering me the most. And so, yeah, I, I'm going to give this a nine out of 10 as well. And I'd say see it in the theater and buy it. I really recommend people see this like on a Saturday night with a big audience. For me, that was really what made this a lot of fun. It was a pretty packed house both times I saw it. And I loved seeing this with other horror fans who were there for this experience. Mm -hmm. And I would definitely echo what Justin said. I think if you can watch uh, the original Halloween, not just for the context, but really for understanding the, the tone and feel of that film, I think this movie makes a lot more sense. Um, if you think about it in terms of being the only sequel to the original film. Yeah. And, and something you said there, Josh, about seeing it with other people. So quick, very quick story. When I walked into the theater for my first screening, I, I saw all sorts of different kinds of people in the theater, but I was like, I, I just wanted to say, I just want to say to them, you're my people. All of you, like, we're, we we have this instant connection because everybody was pumped. Everybody was excited to be there. And, and, like, we all understood one another. I had my horror movie podcast t-shirt on, and we just all understood one another. But then <laughs> when I went on my lunch for just that little half viewing, I felt so ashamed walking out, like, halfway. I waited until after the bathroom kills. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I loved that sequence and I wanted to see that again. But um, <laughs> but I felt so bad about myself walking out because I'm like, these people are just going to think that I was offended and didn't like it or something. <laughs> and, and I was just like so self-conscious about that. I tried to hide my face. and Hopefully I'm, you weren't wearing your horror movie podcast t-shirt that time. No, 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 no. Yeah, really? Okay, good. <laughs> I don't want to c- cause us any more problems than I already do. But anyways... Okay, so yeah, listeners, stick around and uh, keep listening to the episode, and you can catch up with our spoiler section shortly. 
At this point in episode 159, we have a special little treat for you. We have an interview here with uh, Robin Block. He is the executive producer of uh, a film that's coming up that we're really excited to see. Actually, it's called In Search of Darkness, the definitive 80s horror documentary. And just give you a little background about Robin here. He's been working in media and content creation for his whole career. And before he founded a Creator VC, he ran an award-winning production company and a thought leadership business. He's also produced long-form documentaries for major broadcasters, including BBC, Channel 4, and Discovery, as well as having his own DVD label. And he started Creator VC because he saw an opportunity to serve special interest audiences like us horror fans and to bring together the right people to make great ideas happen. So we welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, Robin Block. Hey. Really hey, nice Robin. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> so uh, first of all, Robin, thank you so much for joining us under, for you, very difficult circumstances because <laughs> you're on UK time and uh, we're on West Coast time over here for, for Jason. And it's pretty easy, but uh, it's probably four o'clock in the morning where you're at. So. Yeah, and it's real. No, no, absolutely. When um, when my colleague Jessica mentioned um, that there was an opportunity to come on the show, um, you know, I jumped at it. So thanks ever so much uh, for, for having us on. That's great. <laughs> well, we appreciate you being on. For those who haven't seen the Kickstarter uh, for your project, it is currently running, and you've you've reached your initial goal, but you have a few stretch goals and not only are there great perks available, but you guys also probably need a little bit more to get to uh, to a finished product here because your, your initial goal, although it seems like a lot of money to the layperson, as you know, people familiar with the film industry know it's not a huge amount of money to mm-hmm. accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Um, but before we get too far down that road, Maybe you could just tell people a little bit about the basic idea behind In Search of Darkness and how you came upon it and what people can expect, I guess. Absolutely. So In Search of Darkness is the definitive 80s horror documentary. And um, what I wanted to achieve with this project is to do something that's never been done before in horror documentary history which is really to bring three distinct groups of stakeholders together for the first time. So, you know, there's something quite magical about the 80s as an era in cinema. It was a great, great era in, in cinematic history. And as you would expect with any sort of documentary looking at 80s horror, you'd expect to have 80s horror icons on screen and we've got an absolutely world-class lineup of talent attached but what's unique about what we're doing is we really want to contextualize 80s horror so we're bringing three groups of stakeholders together so 80s horror icons modern horror greats um, and and thirdly a very important group of stakeholders which which i refer to as horror influencers which includes uh, YouTubers, editors of some of the largest and most popular horror platforms out there, um, merchandisers, um, the people who are the bridge between the work and the audience. And so by bringing those three groups of people together, we're really going to be able to make sense of the 80s uh, horror genre 
but also make it relevant and look at it in a in a way that it's never been looked at before. Yeah, it's great. So looking over your Kickstarter page, I mean, first of all, people will notice there's a great video, but it, you know, it essentially is just a clip presentation, but it, but it's so well done and it's got such a great attention to detail. And further, you've created a, a beautiful poster with a world-renowned horror poster artist, someone who's very influential in the UK uh, for young horror viewers of the 80s. And uh, and you can just tell by going through your Kickstarter page how much you've um, how much care I guess has gone into the development stage of the documentary. But yeah, you've also got just incredible people on board your team. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the team that you've assembled? Yeah, so um, the I've got an advisory team, and um, I've got some incredible people on that team. So real horror movie experts people like heather wixon from daily dead um my producer Evrim ursoy who is the creative director at fantastic fest um my director of photography is a guy called jim coons um yeah. who is like the go-to guy for horror documentary in uh, mm, in la yeah. Um, I was chatting with Barbara Crampton yesterday uh, <laughs> and she was like, Jim, I love that guy. He's great. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've got, um, you know, I've actually got a 30 person advisory team that I work with um, when I was putting this project together. Uh, so it's been, it's been you know, a remarkable journey to get to where we are at the moment. And it's just the beginning right now. Um, you know, we've got some incredible people involved, you know, people that have shaped how horror is viewed as a genre. So we've got uh, Michael Gingold on board. Um, we've got Phil Noble Jr., who's the, the current editor of Fangoria. We've got Jonathan Barkin from Dread Central, um, John Squires from Bloody Disgusting. Um, it's pretty much a who's who of the horror movie Illuminati um involved in this production um and that was by design you know i only want to work with the best um and i think our kickstarter reflects the values that we want to convey um, in the actual film itself tell us a little bit about your kickstarter campaign how that's gone so far and what people can expect if they check out the page yeah so i i started working on this project um in mid-july so we've had a you know two and a bit months of, of pre-launch and we met our initial target on Kickstarter within about 48 hours, which was encouraging. Um, <laughs> and, and if you, if you visit the Kickstarter page, you'll see what I think is an incredible trailer uh, made by a friend of mine, Nick Bosworth. And that trailer really, what we try to do is, make you feel how we want you to feel when you see our film. You know, 80s horror is all about reconnecting, in my case, with my past. You know, the first time I experienced 80s horror was when I was growing up. And there's something very powerful about those feel feelings of nostalgia. So, you know, that that is what we want to convey. You know, we want you to see our film and go off and have a 12-hour movie marathon you know, and revisit some classics that you haven't seen in a few years, but also learn about movies that missed you the first time around. Yeah, I think it's interesting looking at your Kickstarter page. You talk about, yeah, it would be easy to fill an entire feature-length film with 
you know, these great clips we all love, but you know, there are also all these incredible people that we want to talk to from the creators and the influencers, everything you've mentioned. So you talk about, yeah, we're going to be actually producing a standard length cut as well as this extended cut version that you can make available to the backers who back the project at this stage. Yeah, so I think one of the really important things to sort of be aware of is this is by the fans, for the fans. It's fan-funded. So we've worked with the community, listened to the community um, to understand what they want, and it was very clear that they wanted an extended cut. They wanted something that was long, that was detailed. Yeah. That they Horror really fans love, love their content. Whenever an episode <laughs> comes in over three hours, that's when they're, they're really happy. That's right. So that's, so the three hours seems to be the sweet spot, right? So um, <laughs> yeah. that's what we're going to do. You know, we, we, do, um, we are going to have a standard cut, which will be sort of – it will be longer than 90 minutes because of the subject matter. Um, but it's something that we can work with with distributors and broadcasters, etc. But um, for the for the horror aficionado, there's going to be an extended cut, and that was part of our first stretch goal, which was met um, at the time of this recording. It was met uh, last night, uh, which was um, you know a, a great thing to happen. So that, so so now we're working towards our next stretch goal. Um, which I can talk about a bit later. So Robin, I'm just curious, are you going to be focusing on the international horror cinema of the eighties? So eighties horror from all different countries. It's a really good question. There's we're doing um, at the moment. One of my partners is a guy called Derek Schweigart. who's also part of my advisory team. And Derek runs a website called eightieshorror.net. Um, and on social media, we're currently doing a the top 100 movie uh, countdown. I think we're at about um, number 58, so we've still got a few days to go before we hit the number one. But um, in that countdown, there's movies from around the world. There's a lot of Italian cinema in there. Uh, and I think that we need to definitely include um, a variety of, um, territories in the documentary, but you know the 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 goal of this project is to tap back into what made you love eighties horror in the first place. Mm-hmm. So there'll be films you know about, there'll be films that you don't know about. But my um, my vision for this project isn't isn't to sort of focus on a particular territory. Right. If you did an amazing movie in the eighties that horror fans are going to love or horror fans should know about that is going to add to the conversation, the chances are we're going to cover it. Excellent. And so I assume that also you'll be covering all sorts of subgenres like slashers and so forth, obviously. Yeah, I think, I think that there is, I mean, there's a, you can go down a rabbit hole um, with the sort of classification. Mm-hmm. And I think, that my approach with this is not to get too hung up on whether it's a slasher or, you know, regardless of, of what it, how you categorize it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all about the feeling and the work and looking at the work and looking what it's, what inspired it, what, you know, what was going on in the world at the time when this came out, mm-hmm. how do we feel about it now? What is its relevance? You know, who is in it? What stories have never been told? Um, that's much more of the line that we're taking. 
And, you know, yeah, a lot of what you talk about, or at least the uh, the Kickstarter page sets up, is the type of things that we love talking about on the show. Uh, the sociopolitical context ex- inspired these films, and you list here some, like fear of nuclear war, violent crime, deadly diseases. That's the kind of stuff we really enjoy delving into on this podcast. So mm-hmm. I think our listeners will enjoy that kind of content quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something really... Um... It's like a global time warp happening um, across sort of pop culture now where the 80s um, is really relevant. Um, And if you I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think the fact that life now, um, because of the because of the Internet, um, you know, life seems very complex, whereas we think about the 80s and we think about a sort of simpler time, a more direct time. But there's some really strong parallels between the sort of socio-political context um, that influenced the work and where we are now in the world. Um, and I think that's playing a big part in why the 80s um, is, is such a relevant decade in, in modern pop culture right now. Mm-hmm. And it, right. it's always it's fascinating too because um yeah there were the legitimate fears of uh the cold war and and and, and a lot of that was happening in the world but also it, at least in the united states i'm i'm not as educated about everywhere else in the world unfortunately but in the united states it was also kind of a time of abundance too and so i feel like um there was this weird blend where some of the things were pretty upbeat yeah, uh, like there's a lot of comedy horror in the '80s as well. Yeah, yeah, you have I guess that weird mix of abundance and the fear that it's all going to end any any moment. <laughs> right. Maybe makes for kind of a manic existence, and certainly reflected in the cinema of the era as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, just before we let you go, Robin, um, you know, I I just want to say to our listeners, from what I can see here, from the work you've done, at least in preparation, it looks like a really fun blend of the artistic form intellectualism just good old-fashioned horror fun and it, it seems to me like like you say you can kind of get a sense of what it is you're going for if you look at the poster if you watch the teaser trailer if you look at the people involved i personally am super excited about this this is something that we hope to participate in as well and um if you could just tell our listeners where they can go to support this and, and what is in it for them, I guess, if they do participate. Yeah. So first of all, um, in terms of finding us, we're across social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and it's the same handle. It's at eighties horror doc. Uh, we've got a website which currently is, um, redirecting through to our Kickstarter page and the website, the website is eighties horror doc and we've got some incredible rewards um so we've got some limited edition artwork from um a legendary horror illustrator graham humphreys we've got two types of artwork we've got our main sort of portrait um image and we've got um, a landscape uh, poster both a2 um which you can see if you click on the 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 kickstarter page t-shirts Blu-rays, digital downloads, DVDs, soundtrack, um, and a physical soundtrack. We've partnered with the Synthwave label, um, New Retro Wave, who are going to be compiling the official soundtrack. I saw uh, that. That's really cool. That's great. It's really cool, isn't it? You know, like the 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 universe wants this to happen, 
Um, we're very much, you know, we're very much like the, the, the fan base has embraced um, what we're doing and is helping to drive it. And, I, and this was my first experience. You know, I'm an, I'm, I'm an 80s horror fan. You know, I, I work on projects that inspire me. And I love this stuff. And the horror community is like the best bunch of people I've ever met. You know, they're so supportive. You know, it's quite scary when you're pushing stuff out onto the internet. You know, you expect people to sort of criticize you. And and it just hasn't been that way. Like people have just embraced mm. what we're doing. That um, must be refreshing. And, <laughs> just, yeah, <laughs> like, it's refreshing. And, and um, you know, obviously there's a, there's a, you know, I've got a significant responsibility to deliver um for the fan base deliver for our audience deliver for the backers um but we've got a very clear vision of what we're going to do and um you know what i would say is join join the adventure you know people people join kickstarters they back projects because they want to be part of the journey they want to they want to be part of something to help sort of get it so it manifests and i couldn't think of a more fun project um you know there's a lot of serious Sort of elements to 80s horror there's a lot of sort of socio-political elements to it that you, you know we need to talk about but let's make no mistake this is fun this is going to be a you know a nostalgic yeah. roller coaster ride back to 80s horror and uh, you know that's how i want you to feel and and but because of that robin i bet you'll be including some 80 some 80s pig-headed horror in there i know motel hell will probably show up i'm, I'm guessing <laughs> Right, Josh. Well, you know. just, just ignore him, bro. <laughs> just, just saying. You're gonna have to wait and see. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if if anything, so we're we're doing this top 100 um, at the moment, and there's lots, you know, there's lots of controversy about placements of of, of films. And I keep saying, sure, you know, yeah. I didn't write the top 100. It was it was Derek Schweigart from 80shorror.net. So if you don't <laughs> like what we're saying, go and speak to him. Um, I'm gonna swerve that bullet. Um, yeah, and I, th I think we've triggered a few people. So uh, that's when the '80s horror yeah. fans will turn on you. Actually, is when you start <laughs> yeah. telling them what the best, what the best film, even probably the selection of uh, folks on your poster. I'm sure you got plenty of feedback on who wasn't and wasn't included on that. But, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, horror fans are detailed, aren't they? They 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 yeah. know who who actually like I. I really love the horror movie, um, both posters. I'm really so, I'm so happy yeah. with the artwork, but yeah. um, just, we did a we pushed, if you go onto our Twitter page, we made a little video about Graham Humphreys um, making that art and his process. And, you know, the, I, I was a fan of his. Um, if you, if you grew up in Europe, 80s horror, you know, the, the cover art was all pretty much Graham Humphreys. And he has a really strong aesthetic, and so when I when I started to talk to him about this project, I basically said like, "This is what I want to do. Can you just, you know, I, I'm not going to give you a really, you know, expansive brief. Just just make something that's super cool." Yeah. And that was like the 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 length of the conversation I had, and he absolutely delivered. And I can tell you, it was a real privilege to work with him and and see how he does what he does. Um, and you know, you, he's one of the guys that's on the conventions. Um, you know, knows everyone. Everyone has, you know, nothing but amazing things to say about him. And like, I'm just so grateful for his artwork because it does express how how we want, you know, the audience to feel. That's great. Well, Robin, thank you so much for dropping by. We were going to put all of this information in the show notes at horrormoviepodcast.com. We'll be tweeting out this information as well. 
to our listenership. And um, yeah, please include us as much as you can in this process. And we will keep our audience informed of it along the way as well. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. And and thanks ever so much for having me on. And congratulations on what 169 shows you guys have done. Yep, pretty close. <laughs> That's <laughs> incredible. That's yeah. incredible. What an achievement. And so, um, you know, um, it, it's a real honor to be on here. Uh, we'll, we'll push this out everywhere that we can. And, uh, you know, I hope that you enjoy the movie. Thanks so much, Robin. We really appreciate you. your time. All right. Take care, guys. Okay. Cheers. Take care. All right, so at this point in episode 159 of Horror Movie Podcast, we've got a great voicemail. I was really hoping that we would hear from this particular Southern gentleman, and alas, we have, because of all the people in the world whose opinion I want to know about the new Halloween film, it is this man. HMT crew and HMT listeners, Greg Amortis here from the land of the Creeps Horror Podcast. Happy Halloween, boo. And my thoughts on the new Halloween 2018, uh, keep it short and brief, I would definitely say I absolutely loved the film. It does have issues. It does have an ending that kind of left me scratching my head a little bit. But overall, I loved the film. I love the whole dynamic of Lori Strode. I love the family avenue of the daughter and the granddaughter. I love the uh, little kid acting, the little comedic side of things that he brought to the table. I love the brutality of Michael Myers. The mask looks amazing. And uh, I just I love the overall feel of it. I'm so excited to finally have Michael Myers back on the big screen. So I recommend everyone go check it out, man. I love it so much. Uh, so we want to plug, of course, Land of the Creeps. Our Halloween episode will be out on October 30th. So you'll definitely want to listen to that as well as we're ranking the Halloween Michael Myers maps, the kills from the Halloween franchise, all that. So definitely head over to Land of the Creeps as well. But we love you, Jay, Wolfman, ow, 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 Josh, of course, <laughs> Dr. Shock and the whole crew. Thank you so much. But my thoughts is... Not a perfect film, does have some issues, but overall, I was really pleased with it. I give it a great A, man. Perfect film for the season. You guys take care. Peace out. <laughs> the Greg Mortis from Land Love of the Creeps. Love that man. <laughs> I, I, I envy Dave and Justin that they get to discuss Halloween with, with Greg. Seriously. <laughs> after this. That will be a lot of fun. Yeah. So, Jay, Greg brought something up that has kind of come up a couple times during this conversation, but that we didn't really dig into. And it's a question I have for you. What did you think of all the comedy in this movie? Usually you hate that. I haven't heard <laughs> you bring it up once. Yeah. Well, I, to be honest, I did appreciate the comedy in this film, but as with any horror film, comedy is fine. As long as it's not happening in the face of absolute terror i mean that's what bothers me about comedy horror so like you know the comedy in this like it's it's okay like in the friday the 13th films in the beginning when there's like silly stuff and i think there are comedic moments in this but like you know when the kid in the truck is you know is talking about his you know how he loves dance or whatever or you know the little hilarious kid that she's babysitting that comedy is not happening in the face of pure terror so I've heard a couple of people complain about Julian's character, the little boy, that he was still cracking jokes, even when 
you know, danger was present. I heard multiple people with that criticism, or I should say read multiple people's criticism uh, on Twitter about that point. And I really didn't feel like that was the case. I thought he was acting totally realistically for the character that they set up for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he was like trying to be funny. I just think that his reactions might strike people as funny, you know, like, but I don't think it was like he, he was doing a bit or, you know, trying to crack jokes. I agree. Like when he says, you're going to die, Dave. Like, I don't think he's, I don't think yeah. for him, that's a joke. I think he's literally telling Dave, you're going to die. <laughs> right. Exactly. I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. So anyways. Okay. Well, I was curious about that. Yeah. I'm also very curious to hear this next voicemail. Oh yeah. This one is from Juan. <laughs> Hi guys, this is Juan from Houston and I just want to say how much I love the new Halloween movie. I feel like it's a fantastic take on the original material. I love the updated visuals and the new soundtrack. It all worked for me. Um, even the continuation of the story, I feel like it was, a, it was a big hit for me. And I just want to talk a little bit about comedy and horror because it seems to be a pretty big issue these days. Um, ever since I saw the new Halloween, I've seen way too many reviews criticizing it for including comedy in it. Some say that it diminishes the horror and others go as far as to call it confused because it doesn't know whether it wants to be a comedy or a horror movie. And I just think this is nuts. Comedy in horror is nothing new. It has always been present whether people like to admit it or not. It has always served a purpose and it isn't there just to water down horror. It breaks the tension and helps build characters. The people in these movies are humans and like humans, they should have a sense of humor. So it seems perfectly natural to me that they say the occasional joke and banter around with each other. Look back to all of your precious hardcore horror movies and I dare you to find one without comedy in it. It's called comedic relief and it's a beautiful thing. Anyway, um, I hope you guys are having great recording, and I'll see you on the boards. Well, I'm happy for Juan that he enjoyed the movie that much, and I, you know, I think that's I know what we can hope for for all listeners. But again, I would say Juan is not a huge Halloween fan. I believe it was during the Friday the Thirteenth franchise that he called me. I believe he coined the term Halloweeny. And was calling me Halloweeny and tried to get other oh. listeners to call me Halloweeny during that time period. Oh, geez, that that know. sounds just like one actually. But no, totally. I'm I'm glad he liked. <laughs> I'm glad he liked that this film because um, you know, it seems like there aren't a lot of things that that Juan loves that I love, and so Juan, <laughs> we both love the film the same one. <laughs> that means you love each other if i'm not mistaken it is that's exactly what it means <laughs> and 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 juan's favorite subgenre of film say it with me pig-headed horror <laughs> just kidding <laughs> i was just messing i was messing okay and at this point in episode 159 of horror movie podcast it's the moment you've been waiting for this is our spoiler section for halloween 2018 and I just got to know, I've been waiting this whole time. Justin, did you ever find out, did you ever figure out what drew John Carpenter back? <laughs> I honestly never did. I feel like for Carpenter, this was a good opportunity for him to 
well, first of all, it serves a lot of it serves a lot of purposes for him and his family. He, he gets Cody, his son, who does a lot of he he's on John's albums too, but Cody does a lot of his own music, which is really wonderful. And he just released an album, and you should track down Cody Carpenter's stuff. It's amazing. But it gets Cody into the scoring game in a huge way, and the, the biggest way, right? The same way John got into the game, and it gets John as a producer on this thing again, which is going to definitely benefit him in a lot of ways, and plus a, a chance for him to sort of put a period at the end of the sentence on the Halloween stuff. And with Jamie Lee being there, this is the moment. This is as close as we're going to get, I think. And so I get why he did it. I totally do. It's a smart move for him. He knew what money was behind it. He knew who was involved with Blumhouse, and all the Blumhouse's films are, are money makers. But I never, I never was satisfied in that quest to have this moment, this element, this character, this arc that handed me like, wow, this is legitimately different than what we've seen before. Because I, I felt like what we were seeing was in many ways toned down versions of elements from all the other films and done with an incredibly messy and cumbersome script with characters that were introduced and then forgotten with miscues and in some ways, mishandling of certain elements. And there were some great opportunities with things that were unique and original that they brought in, and then they squashed them right away. And we'll get to that, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. I just, I never got it. I, I have yet to really connect with it. And, and like you guys, I, the second viewing changed a lot for me in terms of acceptance. But I really can't just put my finger exactly on one thing that I, I, I have yet to really connect with it. Okay. Well, where did you want to go first, Justin, then in, in spoilers? What specific aspect would you want to talk about? Well, one of the things that I loved about it, in the to talk about some positives, I, I, that courtyard scene I thought was wonderful. And that was, that in the trailer, it gave, it was, it seemed really inspired. And it was a visual aesthetic that hadn't really been present in any of the films, except for maybe Rob's Halloween 2 where it almost had a European feel. I mean, that scene can really be compared to the courtyard scene in Suspiria with the camera swooping down. The dog is there adding tension to things you have. I mean, it, that the, the frantic music as it's happening in this case, it's the screaming of the people around him and this wide expanse. And this is not a film with a lot of wide shots. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of tighter shots and medium shots and things like that. So where the original is that beautiful full wide spectrum for so much of it lingering shots of just the front of the house as Michael enters the frame and moves through it things like that like that kind of pacing which I understand a lot of people might not be game for today is a lot of the majesty of that first film and this film lacked that but I thought that sequence in particular was great and I loved the hard cut with him screaming Michael and then it's right into that theme. <laughs> I thought that moment was just goosebump inducing. Mm-hmm. That was so awesome. And there it is, Carpenter doing the theme. That was awesome. So powerful in that moment. And so I, I enjoyed that. I, I think that the reason that kid Julian stands out in the film so much is because he has personality <laughs> where a lot, I mean, no one else in the film really does. It's a pretty vanilla cast of troubled people and struggling people. And that may be a, a more realistic presentation, but it didn't feel like there was a lot of departure from Lori. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone around her was kind of, she was bleeding onto the people in her family in a way, which makes sense. But it made it 
a rather static cast in terms of the characters that were there. And they would introduce someone like the boyfriend. And is the whole thing with him just set up? He's a creep, right? So we know that. And then he throws her phone in a bowl (laughs) of pudding at a dance. I don't know. Kids chug pudding these days. I don't know. But she loses her phone. So the whole, but then he's, he's left in the dirt, which is kind of inventive in a way, like the most obvious guy didn't get killed. So I guess you can give it props for that. (laughs) But there's not that satisfying moment of comeuppance for this guy who's a jerk to one of the most sympathetic characters in the film. And the biggest thing for me that I want to touch on to answer your question is Sartain. Mm-hmm. because I really enjoyed his character and it felt to me like an extension of if, if we're pointing to anything else in the franchise, it would be closest to Loomis in part five where his mm-hmm. madness has just consumed him. And mm-hmm. I, th- it's such an intriguing concept to consider this doctor being so obsessed 40 years or however long he, who knows when he transitioned into different phases of his obsession with Michael, but regardless all these years of him watching this guy and he, as he says, wanting to see him in the wild, the, the chance to do that, like that's, that's mm-hmm. beyond doctor. That's into a kind of mania that we saw in Loomis <laughs> in part five. That was really pretty terrifying how he handled children and stuff. And here it is again, the idea that he would cross the line into wanting to taste that blood a little bit is like Robert Downey Jr. and natural born killers in the prison sequence. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that where he turns and all of a sudden he's part of the gang and he feels like he's included in this thing and he gets the, the that, that rush of that if you guys have seen that film. And that's like mm-hmm. a big moment for his character. And so here, Sartain, it sets this thing up where he could, if you're looking at it from a franchise standpoint, it's tantalizing to consider a character who's running so close to Michael that's doing some of the same things he is but getting away with it because Michael's going to be the fall guy the whole time. If he's wanting, it's almost like he's prodding and encouraging Michael to do the bad things that he would be doing while, quote unquote, protecting him, working with the state and whatever else needs to be happening. But he's out there doing the same thing. It set up this thing that I thought, wow, this now this is this is the only twist in this film. And it's a shocking one. Hmm. And then it wasn't 90 seconds later. It was over. They mm. killed him off so fucking f- it's like they couldn't wait to get rid of this one character that that gives us something more than just someone who's suffering, someone who's scared, someone who's angry. Like this is a guy who has other emotions outside of just those things, which the rest of the cast is populated with. I just didn't really buy any of that. I, I liked it in terms of like it, but just like I mentioned, it feels more like Dr. Wynn and curse of Michael Myers. Like I, 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 in fact, I would have appreciated this maybe even more if it would have been Dr. Wynn since, you know, since his character doesn't go on from, you know, to where it goes, the franchise would have been cool to re reboot Dr. Wynn as well. Um, Could have been interesting. I do think because this was a movie about, about this trauma, this just, like you say, it was different. And, and I guess for you, that was good for me. It was, it felt outside what the rest of the movie was. And so that's why it felt so jarring to me. And I just hated that, that sequence because I just thought what this is turning into a totally different style of movie. And it was only that movie, like you say, for a few minutes and then it went back to what it was doing well, before. That's, so I, yeah, yeah I don't know. that's a great, that's a great example of how scattershot the movie is as a whole, because yeah. the, the, there's so many things that are introduced and then pulled away or introduced no. and forgotten. And like the sheriff doesn't really have a purpose. The deputy. Yeah, I wish, really Sarah, I wish Sheriff do. Hawkins would have been 
sourced from the source material as well. Yeah. Um, here's here's a reason the this thing exists supposedly. Now I don't know if you guys ever heard, but there were rumors going around that the first test screening of Halloween went terribly, and audiences were hating it. And then Blumhouse denied that that ever happened. But then someone you know, emailed out their actual reaction cards from the, the screening because Blumhouse was saying it had never even been screened. And um, the, the word on the street is that the, in the original cut of the film, the way it was originally intended to be presented, that Jamie Lee Curtis in the scene where she's waiting outside of Smith's Grove and she's drunk and she's screaming in the car and Michael's about to be released in the original cut, she is the one who drives the bus off the road, causing it to crash and Michael to escape, which, as we learn later, was kind of what she wanted all along because she wanted to lure him back and, and kill him. That would make and so that, much more sense. I love that. I love that version. I love, I love that, that idea. So, so apparently that tested really poorly with audiences because they blamed Lori for all of the other deaths that happened in the movie, to which I say, yeah, that's brilliant. It that is. is that's exactly sure. what it should be. Yes. If yeah. you're really trying to have a monster create another monster. But right. apparently people hated that. And so that's when they went back and shot all of this stuff with Sartain to try to give another reason why Michael may have been able to escape that situation. And that's and that's the rumor going around. Quick clarification um, on that because I'm a little dense. I just want to make sure I understood it correctly. Because I don't believe they explicitly state it unless I missed it. So we are to understand that obviously the bus crashed and he escaped because the doctor made it happen, right? He yeah, Sartain says that Michael overtook the driver. Um, but yeah, I, I, and again, I probably will. This will become more apparent on subsequent viewings. But my understanding is, yeah, we are led to believe that Sartain is the one that. Um, right manipulated that situation well, so that Michael they make stay. a point to show him sitting down in the front where there's like a cage for the guys in the back and they show a shot yeah. of him getting settled into his seat in the front right next to the driver mm-hmm. right so so there's actually like there's no way those guys those guys would have been separated from the driver in that scenario right and plus sartain right. was in the back where everybody he was sort of hiding in the back of the bus mm-hmm. after whatever when, had happened yeah. had happened and, and it's almost yeah. like he was hiding out back there or something later on yeah Right. So my other big problem with the film was why is Michael even looking for Lori? It doesn't make any sense. If, if it, she's not the sister, what is the deal? Like, why is he obsessed with her? You can actually make the argument that it's Sartain that brings him to Lori, that maybe he wasn't looking for Lori. We see him come out um, onto the street and just going house to house, killing people. He's just That's like, yep, exactly. next house. Boom, kill. Next house, boom, kill. But because of what happens with Sartain, he basically delivers him to Lori's front door. That's the closest house. He's going to go in and kill somebody. That's exactly what I got from it, too, that this was Lori was looking for him, but he was just killing. He was just doing what, you know, what what he was, I guess, programmed to do. And, and you got it in that scene where he's walking into those houses. And that, for me, was a really strong scene because this is Halloween you're going to be a little more open with your house because kids are coming up to the door and whatnot. And Michael just walks in and kills people. And he does that twice, um, just sort of random people. And that scene for me was like, wow, you well, know, this is really technically, right? Well, yeah, four times. Right. 
but you got that with the, but I'm thinking that one sequence, you know, where the kids go up and then mm-hmm. Michael goes yeah. in and then there's kids and Michael goes in, and, and you get that. And he's just walking around in a mask. So he's fitting in. He's like part of the group now and mm-hmm. nobody's paying any, any attention to him mm-hmm. uh, as to what he's doing. And that was such a strong scene, but you're right. He didn't even, I don't even think he cared about Lori. I don't even know if he gave her a thought because he was delivered to her and that's how it ended up. And he's just going to kill. Um, now real quick, and I don't know why I saved this for the spoiler. I could have probably say it, said this in the other section. I did watch the original before, um, going to check this one out. Again, it's, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. One of the greatest horror movies ever made as far as I'm concerned, but, and Justin, you touched on it, that scene where you just see the face come out of the dark as Lori is, is standing there and you see that face sort of come out of the shadow. When I went to the theater and this was never an intention Okay, um, it, it, it was in the largest theater uh, at the cinema that I went to. It was in theater number one, which has the big screen, the double D or big D screen. <laughs> and I walk into the theater. I'm the first one there and I'm looking for the best seat, you know, because I know it's not going to be crowded. It's a Wednesday afternoon. It's not going to be a crowded house so I can have my choice of any seat. And I'm just looking around saying, OK, where where is it? Well, up towards the back, there's a huge speaker. And, you know, it's sort of lit. The whole theater is sort of, sort of dimly lit, and you can see everything um, when you first get there. But there, because of that speaker, there was a corner that was in complete darkness. There was nothing there. There was nothing, you know, like it, it's just, it was just a big shadow in the corner. And I immediately thought of that scene in Halloween. <laughs> and I sat myself right in front of that with my back to it. Through the whole movie. Oh, nice. I just decided to do that. <laughs> Dead serious horror challenge right there. That's what I was sort of thinking. Yeah, not quite <laughs> not quite on the same level of what other people have done. Mm-hmm. Just one more thing on the Sartain thing. I think the reason that solves my, you know, my T2 issue with this is because then what that reveals is Lori's been waiting for the moment for him to be transferred so that she can get Michael into this situation she you know right. the whole thing is a trap right so yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah and the scene at the end one thing i thought another interesting thing was when you thought of that movie and how michael could be hiding anywhere and he could come out of the shadows i really did like how when Lori was going through the house she would boom a cage would come down okay you're not there boom you're not getting in there yeah And then another one, boom, you're not getting in there. You know, you're now you're going to be, I know where you are. And I also know where you're not going to be. So Hmm. I don't know for me, that really softened a lot of my issues with the film. Those, those two little elements, the last element that's kind of, again, outside the film that kind of softened my issues with the film is that I was, I saw an interview with Danny McBride at the Toronto film festival, which is uh, where the movie premiered. And he said, when I originally pitched this, I pitched it as two movies or we, you know, we had initially conceived of this as two movies. And then and subsequently in other articles, Daniel McBride has said, you know, we just decided, well, we better just double down on this first movie, make sure it's good. And then if we get the chance to do the second one, we know where it's going to go. So I, although that doesn't excuse it, it has to stand on its own. I think all of Justin's criticisms are correct about the boyfriend and some of these other side characters that for me does soften it a little bit. If the, the idea was, well, this is only the first half of the boyfriend story, or this is only the first half of the granddaughter's story. We're going to see the rest of that 
in yeah. in our part two, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I was thinking about as as I left here is the way they set up Lori's character. Of you know, she was she basically only got a portion of her life to herself. It's up to the moment that she met Michael forty years earlier. So into into her teen years and the rest of her life, she's a grandmother now, has been spent obsessing over him, preparing for him, um, wanting, you know, to 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 take him down. That was her her drive. And this is her entire life. And one thing that I couldn't stop thinking about is, yes, you, you get an end for Michael, which we've seen so many times before. So who knows if it's a real end, but you get an end for Michael. But is there an end for Lori? I mean, she now, what does she do? You know, and I think that could make an interesting movie is what is Lori going to do now? Her life, her life is over in a way. It reminds me of, um, <laughs> Pete. well, and does she become irredeemable too? You know, if she's planned to murder essentially, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> right. Yeah, she becomes just where, the thing where she does, hates. Where does that go? And I, my God, if they had kept that sequence in with her ri- driving the bus off the road, that would have even added more weight to that moment for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love that. So with the two podcasters in the beginning, we we see them in the trailer. And the trailer leads us to believe that they're going to be significant characters. And then they they more or less open the film. And so I got a real um, Janet Lee psycho vibe where... You know, they killed off what we thought were going to be the new protagonists. You know, I thought we were going to be following these these characters around. And then, no, nope. except the longer trailer shows that he's the one getting his head smashed against, you know, the door where she's oh, okay. in the bathroom. Right. So, and I, and I, with when you have, they could have lasted too long. When you have Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie and she's back and, and they introduce that she has a family, I never really. I wasn't really thinking that those guys, that those two would be around for long. I thought they were there more to sort of set things up. The scene in front of uh, Judith Meyer's grave, um, you know, recounting that whole thing. And um, they were almost like, here's what happened. They're the history. They're they're the they're there to sort of draw the line from the past to the present. Exposition. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was it's kind of amazing that podcasters would have access to walk up to a notorious serial killer in the courtyard at a prison and just say and take and do whatever they want around him. Yes. Which, but if you you look at the Sartain element to it, he's in the background going, yeah, poke the bear, poke the bear. Yes. Yes. But even more puzzling than that is Jamie Lee Curtis's Lori here has spent 40 years living in seclusion. She lives behind gates and barbed wire. She's armed to the teeth. She has a hundred locks on her door but if you wave a couple thousand dollars in front of her without asking a single question, she opens the <laughs> gate and lets you inside not only her property, but then inside her home and then sits and has a conversation with you. And by the way, that money didn't even pay off. That wasn't like given to the granddaughter, like, here's that money you've really been needing for school. She says, use it for school, but she's like, I don't need it. <laughs> it was just like such a non entity, this money, this like whole setup. That, so did she do it? I thought, well, maybe she's benefiting someone with this or herself or whatever, but yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a moot point ultimately. And she showed a vulnerability. Like it was just an odd thing for such a strong calculated character who spent all this time living in this shell to just be like, oh yeah, you got a couple thousand bucks. Well, come on in, come on in. <laughs> well, I, I agree with everything you're saying, except I will say like, she actually says screw college, go to Mexico. 
And I think, Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and I think so maybe the idea is supposed to be, well, like Lori regrets how sheltered her life has been. And right. she wants her granddaughter to have, it's still, it's still, and, <laughs> and something but, may, uh, may or may not be going down. So maybe she wanted to get out of town, but she probably wouldn't leave fast enough. Yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. true. Still. Yeah. That's a good point. It's <laughs> interesting. Um, so what about this? You guys had talked about the earlier screenings. I had heard, I don't know if this is true, that the the early screenings had a different ending where there was more um, combat between Lori and Michael and that this, this fire trap in the cellar thing was like a, a later addition. And, and honestly, I guess I was expecting a little more of a battle between the two of them. Um, yeah, especially given all of her years of preparation and training and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know how much I would want to see Lori Strode beat up on Michael Myers because you just, you, you look at him as an unstoppable force, but still I was expecting like a little more. Buster Rhymes beat up on him. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, the one thing that, that they got, in that sequence at the end when she's going through the house for me from the first movie, one of the things about the first movie is Michael Myers could be anywhere and they set that up and he practically is everywhere. It seems like, and that, that builds such a tension. It's, it's tangible in that first movie that when he finally does show himself, it's almost like a release, even though, you know, something awful is going to happen there's almost a release to that tension. And I got that same feeling as she was going through that house at the end of, uh, at the end of the Halloween 2018 or towards the end of Halloween 2018, when she's going through that house, like I said, shutting the gates saying, okay, well you, you, that, okay, that room's locked off and this room's locked off. I got that same tension of almost like okay let's just see michael because you got to have a release to this at some point regardless of what's going to happen here that was one of the things that i loved about the first movie was yeah. just the tension yeah. that it created i agree yeah and K kagan brought this up as well um a lot of credit to kagan because he he was able to think on his feet very quickly i think we started reviewing the movie like literally less than a minute after we saw it. And he, he came up with some great insights, but one of the things that he said was, um, you know, he said, I just saw oceans 13 and their plan was a lot more impressive than the plan that Lori spent 40 years coming up with, <laughs> you know? And I, I think, I think the film, although again, if we're supposed to buy into the reality of the situation, I don't mind that it's not totally big and over the top, although you could argue the ending is over the top, but, but it would, I think the film would have benefited from a few more um, twists and turns, you know, and, and thinking that she's, that she's messed up, but really she's able to turn the tables on him. That that's the kind of thing I think you expect when someone's spent 40 years planning to murder this guy, you know, and she should know all of his, tricks of the trade you know and and be able to beat him at every turn if that's the movie they're making yes yes and to add to that i mean when when it ends i mean wouldn't you think since since we don't see a body and and so forth and she knows about his apparent resilience from the past 
she would not be satisfied, especially with her paranoia that, that he would be down for the count. I mean, obviously, we we fans, we viewers in the theater were like, yeah, yeah, it, it appeared as though he got incinerated in that basement, but Michael Myers is not dead. He's going to be I, in the cell. He's been incinerated before. <laughs> right. You, know? you told me yourself you watched him burn. I didn't exactly stay to see his ashes. One thing I was almost expecting to happen was was Lori just getting him to the point that she knows he's dead. I was thinking of like, you know, a beheading or something, uh, just doing something where this, now I know he's dead. Yeah. That was a little bit of a, of a, of a, you know, WTF moment for me where, okay, he's <laughs> on fire. Let's walk away. Cause he can't get out of this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas he's, he's gotten out of pretty much any, every other situation before, Again, we have to discount all those sequels. We have to forget all of that that he got away of from those things. But still, it's got to be in the back of your mind that why would she not want to just absolutely make sure? Mm. Right. Yeah, they took us down the same path as the original two films in in some ways, and mm-hmm. it and it ended the same way that that one that the second one did. And I it, one of the things that I think is is not yet been really explored is that they eliminated the family connection between Lori and Michael, but it's still absolutely focused on Lori's family in relation to Michael. Like it's no, <laughs> the fact that they're not brother and sister changed nothing. Good point at all. And that's yeah, like the, that. And, and that's the heart of like, Hey, we did this differently. Well, did you really? <laughs> there in that regard what did that change what did that do to serve the story here what do you guys think about that that's an excellent point actually and um i i think the i agree with you 100 justin i think the only thing that it accomplishes for people like me who thought it was kind of hokey you know that he ended up being related to her as, as well you know i think it removes right. that element and yet still um, threatens her immediate family. So I, I think it kind of has its cake and eat it too that way. But good point. One of the things that I thought maybe was handled that wasn't handled as well as it could have been was the the relationship, at least initially, between the uh, Lori and her daughter. Um, there was a scene that just sort of confused me a little bit. And again, I've only seen this once, but when Lori walks into the restaurant where they're having uh, dinner with the boyfriend and she picks up some wine and, and drinks it you know, kind of fast. And the daughter just immediately is like, Ma, this is why we can't have you here. We can't do it. And I didn't, with everything Lori had done to that point, that seemed a little innocent to me, but it just, it, that to me just seemed, I was like, wow, that's, it's almost like they're trying to, to crowbar in this, this, this conflict, um, you know, between mother and daughter. It didn't seem as, as organic, as natural mm-hmm. that initially, I think it did build later on and i think it's you know we started to understand everything you know, i don't know what left was left on the cutting room floor but that to me just seemed like oh they, they I, I thought that could have been handled a little better at least early on i wonder if that wasn't more of uh the audience complaining that laurie wasn't coming across as likable you know like i wonder if they did cut cut stuff there it's possible which is unfortunate because i do think that that relationship actually pays off really well at the end, you know, when, when there's that reversal with Judy Greer's character, yeah, I think that, I that that's such a great payoff. I agree. 
that it's unfortunate that um maybe it isn't set up a little bit better. So Dr. Walking Dead often says that you can tell a serious horror movie when they kill <laughs> the monster kills a dog or a kid. And so in this film, we do have the killing of a kid, which is pretty it's kind of brutal actually. I mean as a as a parent, it's tough to watch that. I would say that was the biggest or second biggest reaction in my theater. There were the three biggest reactions were the kid killing, yeah. the neck stabbing, and then Lori disappearing after Michael throws her off the balcony. Those were the three big audible reactions. Right. In the theater. But then, but then because, and I, I thought this was pretty brilliant on the filmmaker's part, you know, he, he kills the kid and that established Michael does not mess. He does not care. That kid is dead. But he does. But, but then, but then we see a baby and the baby's yep. crying and everybody is wincing. Everybody in my theater, everybody is like, oh, no, no. And, and I and I believe this is a weird theory, but I'm going to put this. I'm going to float this to you guys. I believe this is the Michael Myers version of Save the Cat where <laughs> because I, I feel like everybody's kind of behind Michael. But I think if he had killed the baby, people would have turned on him. <laughs> And, and and I've actually heard people say, if I thought he was going to stab that kid, and if he was stabbed that kid, I would have walked out of the theater and left. <laughs> like, and so I was glad that he didn't, because I felt like I actually like when things get really dark and horrible. I'm not a sicko. I just love disturbing stuff. But I feel like it would have been a betrayal of, of who we know Michael Myers to be, because in a lot of the series, at least, he... He's usually just going after his targets, and he doesn't kill somebody unless they're in his way or annoying him. Or something. It gives you a pretty good window into the mind of the director and like to let you know what kind of hands you're in. You're like, okay, I'm unsafe, but I'm not that unsafe. Like, <laughs> right. you know, like, yeah, right. a, a good measuring stick. But isn't that also a call back to the original? Doesn't he let a baby live in in 1978? version someone someone said that to me i'm blanking on what exactly that was hmm. i'm not recalling um, yeah i'm not drawing that one i'm not recalling that one hmm. i mean he does have that scene and it, they repeated in this movie where he runs into a kid you know um in the original the the kid who was who was bullying um you know you know the other kid uh, uh, and then he runs off and michael sort of stops him and looks up and this kid looks at michael myers you get that here with the kids trick-or-treating well, yeah, and the, the kids trick-or-treating have the cowboy hat and the boombox from Halloween 2. Right, <laughs> yeah. So they're... they're and There's they a ton of references. There, I mean, oh, there, yeah. there, yeah. there are so many. It's chock full. I like that. I mean, they even throw in a... Wasn't wasn't he related uh, to your mother? Oh, no, that was just something the rumors people started to maybe make it seem a little more... You know, they, they throw everything out there. Uh, okay, so here's a callback type of question for you experts here on the show. Um, so I know that so PJ Souls was the the teacher. You you could hear her voice, and it was in that really neat shot where the the granddaughter's sitting in the classroom and looks out the window. And again, back and, to the first one, same right. corner. I mean, she was sitting in the same corner. It's super cool. Yeah. And you see Lori standing out there, which was really neat callback. But um, so I know that PJ Souls was the teacher there. But was she? And I'm not as familiar with her look now in her later years. You know when he walks into the house and there's the woman in front of the blinds and he like smacks her head down and takes her out. That isn't her, is it? I don't you I know. Don't, I don't think so. Okay. No. Okay. Just checking. Um, it's not. All right. <clears throat> Thanks. <laughs> I just wondered. 
did, did you guys, uh, by the way, in, in that sequence, when he walks into the house, the one house, and he gets, and he picks up the hammer, and, and then you hear that hammer kill with the claw hammer, the, the sound effects of that, see, usually stuff like that does not get to me, but that, that particular sound, it's, I'm like, yep, that's exactly what it would sound like. If, if you were doing that, it, it was really upsetting to me, but it reminded me of in Halloween too, when he goes in and, and you know, there's that old couple and she's like, what do you want on your sandwich? You know, like I love, love that sequence, but, and he gets the knife Mr. anyway. Elrod, well, Mrs. Elrod. Yes. Thank Yes. Yeah. That's Which there's the favorites. call back to Mr. Elrod when during the motion detector scene, that's mm-hmm. what he refers to Michael as the kid. And, and that scene also has the ham sandwich and the knife and everything from Halloween too, as well. Right. Yeah. yeah I appreciate Just it. constant like <laughs> references really. Yeah. So this is a, I mean, in many ways it's a loving tribute and I feel like, and, and I'm curious about what Justin thinks of this because I, I know you don't love this film, but did you feel like it, it was, um, even though it might not have been executed the way you would like to have seen it done, did you feel like there was a lot of loving care to detail and attention to detail um, from from fans who created the film themselves, Danny McBride and David Gordon Green? I do. Yeah, absolutely. And I someone hit on this earlier when they said fan film. This feels to me like a fan film because it's like if you were on a message board and said, okay, guys, we're all together making a Halloween film. What elements right. are we going to put in it? Well, we got to have Mrs. Elrod in the robe. Check. Yeah. We got to have uh, <laughs> Michael walking with the knife sort of in his hand. Check. We got to have, we, there's all these elements like, oh, you know what I thought about was cool in part four, how Michael got the overalls and just kind of, you know, kill that guy in the, in the service station. Check. It's like all these things are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so in a way, as much as it's it's so cool to see all that, it feels almost kind of like a tribute more than a new film to me. It's like uh-huh. it's it's like we get it and and we love this stuff too, and we we kind of want to put all these things together in one for you. It's like a mixtape of the franchise in a way, and and well maybe said. we'll see what happens next. But it really serves that purpose. And so when I think on the film and you say, you know, I don't care for it. I mean, it's, I don't hate the movie. Mm-hmm. Again, the second screening did a lot for me on it and on my feelings about it. But what has allowed me to sort of turn a corner on it is that consideration of it being something outside of, well, you know, this is something different. This isn't, so I'm not thinking of it in the same way mm-hmm. uh, as, as I would a, another sequel in a chronological way in this, in the franchise. It's a good point. It's a cinematic oddity. It kind of can, could stand alone as just this one interesting mm-hmm. thing that happened once. Yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. like season of the witch. It's kind of like this interesting little offshoot. Yeah. But I think with its, I mean, it could stand alone, but I think with its remarkable box office, I mean, what was this? Oh, 77 yeah. million opening. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely going to get more of these things and, and that's super exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. And so one other thing I want to ask you guys about, what did you, th- isn't it interesting that this film has, this, this basically ends with three final girls. It's like a trifecta of final girls. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we've seen that a ton. I mean, maybe you can't call it final girls if it's more than one, but that's kind of cool to me that it does that. Well, 
just kind of on that note, maybe not answering that exact question. I have been curious because we had, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how this is this great feminist film in the time of the Me Too movement. And Laurie Strode even says, you know, the phrase time's up during the movie, which I thought was a nice little nod. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I've seen some pushback on that as well. And people saying, well, this is nothing new. This is, you know, horror has always had the final girl. And we had one listener in particular who left us a, a great comment on this that I want to look into later, maybe if we have time to go over some listener feedback. But um, what do you guys think about that? Is this different than just the typical final girl? Is that Jay? I mean, you mentioned the three strong women. Is this, is there something that sets this apart for you? I mean, it's one of my criticisms with the film actually, because you know, I like dark stuff and, and I do think that the movie was, um, playing it safe or taking it easy or, or something by keeping all three of those women alive. It, it almost seems like the mom, I always want to call her Kitty. Judy Greer. Yeah. Judy Greer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Judy Greer. It, it almost seems like she should have been taken out in the, in this sequence because, uh, because she was the one who was just not, not following the, uh, the harbinger of doom which is Laurie Strode. She was not listening. And usually in a slasher film, the people who don't listen to Harbingers of Doom end up dying, you know? And I, and I think, you know, I think the film lets us off a little easy by keeping all three of our girls alive at the end. And I would appreciate a lot more. I think it would have been a lot more serious business, a lot more Michael Myers worthy because of his ferocity. If he would have at least gotten one of them. Although in that, I think the one he would have had to get would would have been the granddaughter, Why because is that? they right. even they set that up that that Judy Greer's character and there's that really cool scene where she's sort of drawing Michael in, and then does a sort of gotcha moment, uh, going back to the training that her mother gave her all those years. You figured that was going to show up at some point, mm-hmm. that that was going to play into it at some point. So the only one who could have who could have uh, been expendable would have been the granddaughter. Mm. And again, if they were looking to do future movies, I don't know. Well, I will say this. It's a family trauma story and trauma is a generational illness. And I liked that it explored it through generations. And it just so happens that we're at a time in the universe where women are confronting the trauma of their lives and quite frankly um, the perpetrator of that trauma and saying no more i'm going to take back the narrative of my life and so the combination of that and the fact that they were talking about it through the lens of a three generations mother passing that trauma and fear and anxiety onto her daughter and then all of that attempt to not have that anxiety put into her daughter. This is almost like a, an, an interesting twist on the whole final girl, because this is in most movies, the final girl survives in spite of what happens. This is a, this is a, you get a final girl who has every intention of surviving um, and is planning for what's coming. Mm-hmm. And, so and I thought that was kind of an interesting twist. And that's one of the questions that the film asks, I think is, um, you know, what if your victim is prepared? What if your victim is empowered? I mean, we've talked before about horror films and how um, typically, you know, the tone of a horror film shows victims 
you know, shows people who are victims. And and usually when it when it goes into action horror, when, when it's when the tone isn't quite the same and it's action horror, the people are more empowered and they're fighting back against the monster. And and so uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call this action horror, but I do think that the reason, one reason this movie isn't quite as scary, and I've heard a lot of people say they don't feel this movie scary. I think it has some scariness to it, but I feel like it isn't quite as scary for people simply because our um, quote-unquote victims are actually pretty empowered and prepared. Well, yeah, it's scariest when you feel like Jamie's on her heels, right? When she's going around in the house in the dark and she doesn't quite know what's going on. That's, mm-hmm. that's when we're scared. Yeah. Well, and, the, and the people who do die, you don't care about. Right. There's no one in this film who's killed that you spend any time with. They're all sort of like, like the characters that you do. I mean, the podcasters and stuff are even there. Like there's such a distance between you and everyone in this movie. And that's one of the yeah. weird things about it. There's no Jamie Lloyd. There's no, even Laurie Strode. She's at such like forearms length away from the audience because she's such a cartoon of this mad person. And, and I, I don't agree. And that. I get it. And I think she's great, but I just think it's, yeah. it, it's just so much in that direction. So away from, I, I it's, it's, it's hard then when, when you're not invested in the people who are being dispatched, it's like, what are you rooting for? You can't then in that you're, you're searching, you're scanning for something to hold on to, And it becomes Michael. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's where I think a lot of people who feel dissatisfied about the film are like, well, even there, it's like, what am I holding on to? I don't know. Hmm. I think I personally really enjoyed how Danny McBride and David Gordon Green and, and their other co-writer, whose name I'm forgetting right now, Jeff Fedley or something like that. I apologize. The writer. Um, I really liked their, how those minor characters who you know, and it's very common in a slasher movie. We have a bunch of people who are just there to die, but I, but I like how each of them has at least one little humanizing line that for me made me think about them differently. And they're not all hateable. Like they are in many 80s slashers. I think like the little kid who dies has a great line about, how dances his passion. And I've seen a couple of people online (laughs) hating on that, that bit of dialogue, which is fine. It's weird. But to me, that's, what's so great about it is it's so quirky and so human and so out there that it has, you know, that it feels real to me. Like that's not the type of line you usually see in a movie. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what Danny McBride does so well is he kind of captures these little idiosyncrasies and human nature. (laughs) With weird little lines like that, that yeah. to me is so funny. Yeah. And that and that scene and that scene in general, you you pretty much know the father's not going to make it because first off, you you know one of the whole the whole you know characters doing stupid things. You come up to a bus with a bunch of people in, in white outfits walking in the middle of the road, and a bus crash to the right. You're going to get out and nope. say, "Hey, is every you know no <laughs> no way no no way in hell." Especially as as you drive up, they're not even like getting out of your way as you're driving down the road. <laughs> Great, um, great call back again to the first film with the right. with the patients wandering around the in the misty road. Yes, That's mm-hmm. yes. yeah, I, I agree. But the kid is sharper, and you know, you, you sort of think, okay, well, he's gonna he's gonna be the one who's gonna make it out of this somehow, and then he doesn't. 
Um, I love that he shoots the doctor too. Like, what a funny yeah. choice to <laughs> make. Kind of, I thought that was, that was kind of funny. And then he goes, then he starts running. Um, yeah, I thought that was kind of that was. I liked that scene. I thought that was a really strong scene as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Um, final thoughts. So let's wrap up the spoiler section. Anything else you want to say about Halloween 2018? I thought it was a glorious and frustrating experience and I felt much less frustrated on my second viewing and I hope to feel less and less frustrated in the years to come. (laughs) I think I predict Josh that you will. I think you'll like it more and more the more you watch it. I don't think you'll ever be in love with it as a perfect film, but I think, I think you'll, you'll like it a lot. If David Gordon green releases the cut of, of Laurie running the bus off the road on the Blu-ray. Oh man. Then I will be, satisfied that would be cool especially if if justin is doing the commentary on that one the producer's cut yeah the producer's cut that's right (laughs) (laughs) no well and and one last question for you guys about this if you don't mind so if if david gordon green if the same team puts out a sequel to this and i'm pretty sure they will would do you think the sequel will be able to help you appreciate what transpires in the first film more if they do the sequel right and you know what i'm hoping for <laughs> okay yeah absolutely without a yeah. doubt sure. okay that's good yeah so we can hope for that i guess but and i hate when things are set up for sequels and they don't happen like and i'll, I'll go mm-hmm. ahead and put my shield up in front of my face right now when i say i love the lone i, I really enjoyed the lone ranger movie that came out a few years ago and i was always really <laughs> bummed because that, that was setting up a franchise that was supposed to be a trilogy and yeah. it did so poorly because everyone was burying it before they even saw it that it never had a chance to see any of these things through. So, yeah, it's got this plotting pace. Well, it's it's setting up three films. Mm-hmm. It's it's literally right. a planned universe that we got a chance to see the first chapter of. And that's incredibly frustrating. So I would love to see this expanded. And I would love to see more happen with the, the daughters and um, an expansion on taking Michael into some new territory, potentially that the city having a reaction to him and his presence, like the city as a whole being aware of him. That's one of the things I love about the original Halloween too, that even though it's, it's still so fresh in everyone's minds, like there's already this mythology built around him. Oh, I saw him, you know, so-and-so saw him in the field out back the other day, that kind of thing. Like the (laughs) word was the word of mouth was a big part of his, his mythology being built right there. And I think it would be neat to see that continue here around her, around him and Lori. If, if she's going to continue with these films or something like that, Mm -hmm. that would be really fascinating. I I think it sets up a lot of potential through lines that could be really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I love the idea of having Michael Myers and taking Lori down in a way that's different from, a knife, you know, like, like, as Josh said, with, with the bus running, you know, with her running the bus off the road and, and because of her action, you know, he kills people and she feels that like, I, like, I, I don't know. I'm just a dark jerk, I guess. But, but I do love that idea of him um, wreaking yeah. havoc in her life, not just with his knife, but in the monster that he creates within her. It, it would have definitely added more weight to that monster creates a monster. Mm hmm. Yeah, so I hope they, if she continues with the next film, and I hope she does, I hope they explore that further and maybe tease that out more. That'd be great. And it would be a great chance for her to, because in the others, 
Like in H2O, she has a brief moment at the end after she's cut his head off and then the film ends. And the next thing we see from her in Resurrection is that she's this, you know, the state that she's in there and then she's, then she's killed off. Mm -hmm. It would be great to see her triumphant in a film where she moves through the celebration phase of having conquered Mm. something. Mm -hmm. And then she starts to believe in more than just vengeance. She believes in more than this, this thing that's going to eventually break out. Like her life expands and I could see her in the next movie being a much more fully fleshed out character. And then, you know, maybe the family dynamics different Then maybe she's, she and her, all three of them are, are really tightly bound from this experience and they move forward and and who knows how many unique ways I would just love to see a Laurie Strode. That's less of a one note and more of a fully fleshed out character having succeeded at what she wanted and moving into the next phase of her life. Because I think that at once sets her up in awesome dominant ways. And I think it also makes her, maybe she lets her guard down a little bit and then she's caught off guard. And then who knows what could happen from there. It's just really, really, the, the potential's awesome. The mm-hmm. potential's awesome. Totally agree. All right, Justin. Well, thank you. You've been very generous with your time tonight. Let me just tell you. I know that in, in Iowa, it's what, um, like quarter after one, something yeah. like that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so before we send you off for the night, Justin, and <laughs> let you free of our incessant talking and talking, um, just want to know, where can the listeners catch up with more of your work? I appreciate that. And thanks again for having me on and including me in the discussion here. You guys are amazing and I love the show and just so fun. In terms of finding me, I'm on Twitter, just twitter.com slash Justin Beam. And in terms of things that are out right now, you can at this point pre-order Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. We just announced all of my bonus features on that from Scream Factory. So that's available for pre-order with both a standard version and then there's also a limited edition that comes with a Ricky figure from NECA. (laughs) So those can all be found at shopfactory.com. You can also pre-order Screamers. That's the production I'm, one of them I'm working on right now that's coming up next. I think that streets in January. And um, Scream, the horror magazine out of the UK, I have a bunch of stuff in queue for that. I mentioned the big Halloween 2 thing coming out and some other stuff. And also Phantasm Media, F-A-N-T-A-S-M Media. And and my website, justinbeam.com. And I'm starting to do a little more on there. And I'll be be posting more frequently. And uh, with my production company and some other things, I'm going to be having some pretty big announcements over the next couple of weeks here that I'm really excited for. So thank you for the support. really means the world, guys. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Love having you on. All right. Well, happy Halloween, everybody. We hope you've had a fun Halloween with us. I hope you listened to this on Halloween. And this isn't any sort of um, uh, like ego thing or anything like that, Josh. I would just be genuinely interested in knowing if people listen to this episode on actual Halloween. That would mean a lot. part of their celebration. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be really cool. So anyways... We hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you had a good time. And please, by all means, uh, send us your feedback because we're going to have that giant listener feedback episode where we discuss uh, all of your takes and your thoughts on Halloween 2018. But uh, in the meantime, Joshua, would you like to tell the listeners where they could find more of your work? 
Uh, yeah, you can find me online at Icarus Arts on most social media platforms. I'm on Twitter, where I'm very active, Instagram, where I'm pretty active, Facebook and Letterboxd, where I'm less active. Uh, but <laughs> those are great ways to connect with me if you're on those platforms. Also, I am a co-host of the Universal Monsters cast, the movie Streamcast. So look for those podcasts if you're interested in hearing more of my voice. Or the best place is just go to horrormoviepodcast.com. And if you go to the sidebar there, you can see a lot of our awesome back episodes, including Halloween franchise review and many other awesome franchise reviews from Scream and Friday the 13th. All kinds of good stuff. And um, yeah, I hope people enjoyed this show and we'll stay in touch. Mm -hmm. Me too. And I I hope people will also check out... um, Robin Block's uh, Kickstarter for In Search of Darkness, the definitive 80s horror documentary. Um, That'll be linked in the show notes for you. And I also hope you check out our friend Justin Beam's work. Um, Tremendous body of horror um, contributions to the industry and uh, to the world of horror. Something that any horror fan could be proud of, I would say, huh, Josh? So Definitely. Amazing. And uh, our good friend, Dr. Shock, who's at work right now. (laughs) Poor Dr. Shock. That's terrible. Uh, I feel so much guilt about that. But anyways, um, (laughs) you can always find him um, at dvdinfatuation.com. That's where he did his remarkable blog. He is on Land of the Creeps. That's another horror podcast he's on. He's also in our network shows. He's on Universal Monsters cast. He's in We Deal in Lead. And uh, am I forgetting any others, <laughs> Josh? Um, I don't think so. I think that's those are the big ones. Yeah, and on Twitter at DVD Infatuation, of course. And then, and you can hear my silly show over at MoviePodcastWeekly.com, where we were recently joined by the Wolfman himself, Josh Legary. It was really fun to have him back on there. He and Andy do an in-depth review of a very scary film. It's not horror, but it sounds horrifying called oh free boy. solo <laughs> so that was intense man <laughs> so check that out at moviepodcastweekly.com we hope you will get involved in the horror movie podcast community as we've said you can leave comments in the show notes for this episode you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com you can leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789 we're also on twitter at horrormoviecast and we're also on instagram at horrormoviecast as well You could find all of our episodes, all 159 of them, at horrormoviepodcast.com. That's where we also have back archives of the weekly horror movie podcast and Horror Metropolis. We want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. And we also want to thank our good friend, Kagan Breitenbach, for his classical reworking of Fred's original theme, You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com. Those guys will be linked in the show notes for this episode. If you want to hear Kagan talk movies, I just barely did a Halloween reaction podcast that I referred to multiple times during this recording. If you go to our Patreon page, uh, you can hear that episode for free. So if you're not a Patreon listener or subscriber, you can kind of get a sense of what some of those bonus episodes might be like. Although I will say... A lot of them are much more well-produced than that particular one. <laughs> but that is kind of a fun live reaction after watching Halloween 2018 with Kagan, Matroid, and William from the Sci-Fi Podcast and Movie Moments Podcast. Oh, that's amazing. 
I love those guys. Okay, that's it for episode 159. We wish you a happy Halloween. Thank you for listening and join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Horror Movie Podcast.